Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 110 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dane, joined as always by the co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we are back. We are at 110, which seems significantly bigger than 109 for some reason. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when you said 110, I was like, that's almost crazier to me than 100. It's like, okay, we did 100 <laughs> episodes, and now we've, like, done suddenly 10 more? That's That's a lot. <laughs> Who knows what other other numbers will have surprising emotional impacts on us? But uh, uh, I don't know how to make a transition. Sometimes I think oh, I should try and transition this into something else, and then I realize eh, there's times that are not appropriate for like wacky transitions, and this is one because Matt, I do think there's one thing we should talk about a little bit before we get to tonight's show, which will be the usual blend of fun and games and you know there'll definitely be chances to win prizes and trivia okay not really say, but games um, games that's <laughs> i've never been more excited but uh the wrestling world uh lost someone since our last episode and that would be uh dean rasmussen who some of you will know pretty well some of you maybe our younger listeners won't know at all but um, I was thinking about this uh, analogy before I listened to a podcast, which I'll plug in a second, that uh, another Death Alley driver writer, Phil Schneider, mentioned the same analogy. So I thought, God damn it, he beat me to it. But Dean Rasmussen is a guy, I would say, who is like the Velvet Underground, that band from the 60s, where people have often said about the Velvet Underground. Yeah, a lot of their shows at the time might have been sparsely attended, but like everyone at those shows formed their own band. A lot of those bands became bands you knew. I would say even if you don't know Dean Rasmussen's work – and if you don't know the Death Valley Driver video review, his um kind of web wrestling review magazine, which became a form, became a whole culture about 20 years ago, more than 20 years by now, started in the late 90s. Um, you definitely know people that were influenced by it and were there. Be it Tony Khan was famously a poster, a young Tony Khan. Uh, I know Samoa Joe came out this week with a condolence and was a song that was posted there. A lot of wrestlers that probably tried to keep it secret were um, posting and reading there and were influenced by it. Uh, Phil Schneider on this podcast, I'll get to in a second. He uh, mentioned that Rob Feinstein used to um, post stuff in the middle of the night there and that they'd have to delete and take down because it was uh, unsavory. <laughs> so, um, it was a who's who of things. And I will go on to say um, personally, I don't know if I would be doing through the years without. I, I don't want to. I'm not going to try and build this up too big just because this is a tragic event. But I will say, um, I think like a lot of wrestling fans, you start out as a fan of one federation or one kind of scene. And then you either kind of stick to that for your whole life, which is perfectly fine. Or you kind of reach a point where you kind of awaken to other things and you kind of transition to being more of just a wrestling fan that kind of hops from different things. And for me – a big part of me going from like a WWF WCW fan in the late nineties to just being a wrestling fan was the Death Valley Driver video review. Uh, Dean Rasmussen, you know, that was the first place that really opened my eyes in a lot of ways to that there was wrestling all over the world and that there was independent wrestling in the U.S. that could be great. And, um, the great thing about Dean was he was so positive and so enthusiastic. He just wanted to like turn people on to the things he loved. And if you ever read those, you'd have to go to the archive, um, the web archive, because they're not really up on the site now. But if you go to deathladriver.com on the web archive, the Wayback Machine, you can find all the old issues if you search back far enough. And the reviews there would be like, 
Joshi, you know, Japanese women's wrestling right next to a review of like hardcore wrestling next to a lucha review next to like a review of a WCWC show like worldwide next to a review of like Jersey all pro, you know, pre ring of honor, you know, low key Danielson raves. And that place is, you know, I wasn't an active poster on the message board. I was too intimidated. I was too young. I was like, I don't know enough to talk to these people, but like, that's where I learned about Japanese wrestling. That's where I learned about like, oh, I should pay attention to guys like Low Key and Brian Danielson back when he was American Dragon. And um, I know I'm far from the only one. I, I, it's just a highly influential thing. Uh, I'll put Matt before I know I've been drawing on before I pass it to you, Matt. I'll just say um, Between the Sheets, another wrestling podcast, uh, Dave Bixon's band and Chris Zellner, they did two podcasts this week in tribute to him. They did like a half an hour little show with their personal thoughts of Dean. And then they had, uh, the two Phils from Death Valley Driver, uh, Phil Rippa and, uh, Phil Schneider. And they talked for about two hours. I listened to them both. They're, if you're into d- learning about Dean or just, there's some fun stories, particularly in the two hour one. And, um, something Phil even mentioned was he was like, you know, he, you know, he was trying not to be egotistical about, but he was like, you know, he's talked to Tony Khan, you know, in the past. He's, and, you know, he knows the people that read Death Valley Driver. And he was like, you know, AEW might not quite be in its form or exist without the influence. You know, Ring of Honor, he mentioned, you know, they, because they, these guys were hyping up a lot of the guys that became stars in Ring of Honor before Ring of Honor even started. So it's a big loss and uh, condolences to his friends and family. Um, yeah, I listened to that, uh, Between the Sheets episode too, and I, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, uh, I thought it was a very good tribute, and I, yeah, I don't have much to add other than what you said. I echo everything you said, and, um, rest in peace, Dean. Yeah, so, um, now we can get on to the usual show. Um, we've got a few pieces of news up in the Ring of Honor timeline between the last show and this show, uh, first one's from the Wrestling Observer, and this isn't really related to Ring of Honor, but I just thought it's interesting to kind of sometimes remind, just since we're so tunnel-visioned on this show about Ring of Honor, because it's a Ring of Honor podcast, it's fun to kind of remember things that are kind of going on in wrestling at the same time. So this is the Wrestling Observer's report. Dave Meltzer writes, CM Punk debuted beat in ECW, beating Just Incredible in 4 minutes 11 seconds with the Anaconda device. Punk got a big reaction, including ROH chants. Taz tried to get Punk over on commentary as having studied Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and being a heavily disciplined athlete. There was an overrated chant directed at Punk, but most of the reaction was strong. The crowd made him because this wouldn't have played nearly as well as if it, w- if it was held on a SmackDown show. I don't think it's a quince they debuted him in front of a crowd where you knew he'd be over. And so, yeah, yeah, we are officially, you know, out of the CM Punk in OVW, WWE's developmental at the time era. And now at the point where, like, CM Punk is, you know, he's not the first Ring of Honor guy to jump to, uh, you know, uh, WWE and be on TV. That'd be guys like Paul London, Brian Kendrick. But I do think Punk's success over time, you know, it is a sign that starts giving – WWE, another reason to look even closer and pilfer more from the indies. I cannot tell you how excited I was when CM Punk first popped up on the ECW TV. I, you know, I was waiting and waiting and, you know, wondering what would, what would become of him after his uh, OVW run. And obviously Paul Heyman getting to book a TV show really helped. I remember just being amazed that he got to be CM Punk. You know, I mean, like that just wasn't a given at all at the time. And, you know, I, uh, 
I, I, you know, you, you definitely saw the simplification of his character, you know, the way they, they kind of just has promos at the beginning were a lot of buzzwords, you know, I, um, and catchphrases, you know, my addiction is competition (laughs) and, you know, really highlighted the straight edge thing. He didn't really get to be his full self for a while, I would say, but it was cool that he was CM Punk. It was cool that he was getting a push. I, I was marking out, bro. Yeah, this was this was a cool time, you know, for that kind of stuff. And uh, going to the observer, there's another thing I saw, which I, I thought was interesting, just how ahead of time people knew about this, how Gabe Sapolsky, of course, the booker of Ring of Honor, was putting word out of this because he must have directly told Dave this. Dave wrote in the Observer, Gabe Sapolsky is super high on Takeshi Morishima as the next big foreign superstar and wants to feature him in Ring of Honor in 2007. Currently, Morishima doesn't have a working visa for the U.S., but Pro Wrestling Noah will probably get him one for next year. The idea is to build toward a Joe versus Morishima match probably in the latter stages of 2007, although anything like that is very much tentative. So, yeah, obviously that happens in the first half of 2007 probably because Joe is on his way out. He won't be around in the latter half of 2007 in Ring of Honor. But it's like it's funny like you see that story and I imagine at the time if I was if I, I don't remember what I felt like I thought oh you know that that'll be neat. But I don't think anyone reading at the time could possibly have like really comprehended like how big Gabe's plans for and like now looking back reading this you know doing this retrospective podcast it's like a giant big neon light where he's basically saying like I'm in love with this guy I'm gonna push this guy to the moon yeah I mean I um it's it's you know I think hindsight is twenty twenty on a lot of these things but I don't know do you think it was should have been pretty obvious then too uh, maybe. Uh, uh, it's funny because Morishima did not have, you know, quite the buzz among U.S. fans, I would think, as a guy like Kenta, so that might have tempered it. Like, I gotta say, um, I did I did definitely start hearing a lot about him at this point. And, like, yeah. so the buzz was there. And I don't remember where it was, if it was more on, like, Death Valley Driver Board and places like that, or if it was more like Meltzer himself. But I heard his name a lot, a lot about a guy who was, like, a can't-miss superstar, um, you know, even by, by this point. Yeah. It's going to be fun to uh, track his stuff in uh, 2022 when we get to that stuff. So um, I think actually, oh, I I think, was, thinking back, I think it actually was Meltzer who would talk about it a lot and compare him to like Terry Gordy and stuff like that. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Even just his body type and look, his hair, you know, he definitely, uh, yeah, definitely at this point already, you were starting to hear a lot of Japanese Terry Gordy. And also, Matt, did you notice I, I, I tried to come up with like to make fun of like our podcast pace. I was trying to come up with a year in the far flung future when we'd get to that, the Morishima era. And I said 2022, which was last year. So, uh, my comprehension of time not working very well, but. Matt, one more tidbit. This is not news that between now and then, but I did not know where else to place it. So doing research for this episode, I uh, glossed over a bunch of Necro Butcher podcasts. He's a guy who's done a lot of stuff. Didn't find too much directly about tonight's match, but since it's such a big match in his and BJ Wimmer's career, I looked over and I finally broke down, Matt. I uh, I bought the official MP4 of the BJ Whitmer 2012 Smart Mark Video Shoot Interview. I have not watched it all yet. But I've watched a significant chunk of it, and one of my least favorite things, Matt, is when I discover a wrestling shoot review, and it's full of stories that I could have would have done great to insert into past episodes of Through the Years when they're at the appropriate times, and that moment is gone. So, depending if there's enough stuff, I might, you know, maybe have a sectional one show if there's anything really interesting. But 
there was a few things I, I kind of wanted to, but I'm just going to stick to one thing right now that stood out because I, I did think this is kind of a, a fairly significant thing. And then we'll get to when we cover tonight's main event, a lot of the things he talked about in that shoot directly about this match, but something we missed at the time, uh, BJ. So everyone knows if you've been watching the show or the ring of our shows with us, you know, arena warfare, the end angle of that, that was the huge angle of BJ Whitmer getting beat on in the ring at ECW arena by basically half the CCW roster. That was not the original end of that show, Matt. The original idea, according to BJ Whitmer was, um, John Zandig was going to set the Ring of Honor logo in the middle of the ring, the canvas, on fire and powerbomb DJ Whitmer onto it. And DJ Whitmer's like, you know, that probably would have sucked, but I was up for it. But then apparently, like, fire code stuff, they scrapped that. And so this was the – Really? Like, the, the, the idea that it, uh, went back in that era when CZW was running that building a lot – that there would ever be a problem with fire code stuff, given the amount of things they did with fire, um, is surprising to me. I mean, I believe it, but it's surprising. But it really does like continue like this theme of like BJ Whitmer. They just put him through hell. They're like, hey BJ, can we set the rig on fire and power bomb you on? And I just, if you watch the shoot interview, like his, like a lot of BJ Whitmer's reactions to stuff like this seems to be like. Equal parts enthusiasm, but also some of like, eh, this is going to suck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, listen, I mean, if you were to just watch the era, which is what all what I've been doing is and, and did back then, it did seem like BJ was just like up for it. You know, he was just yeah. game for anything. I, but yeah, I'm sure deep down there was something, some hesitation inside his brain. I don't know. We'll touch on that a little bit at the main event. And I guess we should. If we want to get to the main event, Matt, we should start covering the show again. The show we're covering tonight, of course, is War of the Wire 2. took place July 28th, 2006 at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds Coliseum in Dayton, Ohio, in front of a reported crowd of 600 fans. Uh, Chris Johnson, a reader of the Pro Wrestling Torch, he sent in a live report at the time, and he noted – um, he wrote, uh, Ray of Honor drew its largest crowd in Dayton, estimated at around 600, since Redemption in 2005. So that's pretty impressive when you consider that Redemption was like billed as, you know, this is the last weekend we meet at this time for CM Punk, that big four-way world title match that ended up where the belt changed hands. Although, so, although if you think closely, I am pretty sure there was only two shows between Redemption and this one in Dayton. Okay, and, not as impressive. And not, and, and neither of them were big shows. Like, that was, um, um, the the uh, tag wars oh six, and the other one was weekend of champions night one, which was the lesser of those two shows. So this show was anyway. This show was by far the best card of they had in Dayton since the year before. So yeah, with the context, I think it, it it makes a lot more sense. And we also got something we should mention that you, the home viewer, the home listener as well, um, should keep in mind watching the show, I think, because, again, this will be something else referenced at, in the main event. But something you'll notice if you really pay attention to uh, the way the skin of certain talent glistens. Uh, but uh, through the years, listener Ronnie LaFoyette, I pardon you if I just murdered your name. He sent an email, and of course, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through. We love when you send emails. Uh, he gave a, a note and – one thing he wrote in the note that I want to mention here is um, – this is him quoted verbatim. He said, uh, it was hot in that building. Not just hot, but fucking hot, three exclamation marks. That building has exhaust fans in the ceiling to help move air and dissipate heat. Those were not turned on until almost everyone had left the building. The air temperature inside that building was at least 90 or 95 degrees. 
Um, this BJ Whitmer shoot interview, BJ Whitmer, that was one of his memories of this night. He said it was probably close to a hundred outside the building. He estimated a hundred to 110 in the building. The, uh, the on commentary, um, Dave Prezak referenced the fact that the wrestlers referred to it as the oven. Yeah. So, I mean, Matt, it wouldn't be summer U.S. independent wrestling if, if companies did not run in buildings in the scorching heat that did not have proper ventilation or air conditioning. Yeah, and, so, and I, um, I have to say, like, that's bad. Like, I, I obviously, like, I'm not defending it. I think that shouldn't be, right? It's dangerous. But there is something to, like, when you watch, like, a, a summer show, I don't know, maybe it's just the kid in me, but there's something about the atmosphere in the summer where everything just feels, like, no pun intended, hotter. And this was a really hot crowd. And just there's, there's, there's like a, I don't know, there's like a certain excitement that you get with these like big summer shows. And I feel, I still feel that way when I watch certain like wrestling events in the summertime. Um, I don't know. I, I, it might just be all in my brain, but I, uh, I don't know. It's, it, this was a really hot crowd. This is the hottest crowd they had in Dayton in a long time. No, and I, I agree. I get that feeling. I don't really know if it's even like just residual summer vacation from our childhood. It's even like just everything in the summer seems a little more fun, even if it's the exact same thing you could have done four months earlier. And I've talked about this before, and I, I want to make clear. I don't I, – I think buildings should be comfortable. They should be, you know – amenable to the fans you know fans should not have to suffer through anything just to see a good show or as a nor badge should, of nor honor should, nor should workers it, but I, I, i've mentioned this before i do think sometimes if it's a good show there is be it like a wrestling show or a rock concert or something there is a little bit of a charm and a thrill i get sometimes of like I'm watching a great show and I'm kind of suffering a little and this is kind of a shithole. No offense to the Montgomery County Army. I'm sure it's great. But um, <laughs> like so sometimes I get a – I don't know if you agree. I get a little juice out of that even. Like, hmm. I, I think it depends on how uncomfortable I am. Um, but I do – I, do, I mean I, I think really if, you listen to the, if you listen to the Joe Kobashi show um, that we did, for several reasons my back was really, really killing me during that show and it did – I mean, I think it did sort of enhance my memory and experience of it in some ways. Like, oh, I am suffering for this uh, for this amazing moment. I, 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 do, I guess, I guess, I guess, I can relate to what you're saying. It makes you feel like you actually like earned somehow, even though you just did like the most passive entertainment experience possible. Like, no, I suffered to see Joe versus Kobashi, and that yeah. gives you like. It makes you feel like a little more, I don't know, it gives you a little boost, I think. Yeah, but, yeah. But thinking, thinking about that whole summer thing, like I was just thinking back while while we were talking, like I think it goes all the way back to like being excited for some of those summer slams back in the early 90s and then like the summer of 90, 1997, WWF Raw, where with the, the shows in Canada and Bret Hart and all that. It's just like the electric atmosphere, a Canadian stampede. And then, like, the Highway to Hell music videos with The Undertaker and Steve Austin and Goldberg and the Georgia Dome. And, like, and then all the way to Cage of Death in the summer of 2006. And, you know, just like, and then CM Punk coming back to AEW. It's just like, there's something about the summer. I mean, yeah. I don't think it's just my um, nostalgia for my the summers of youth. I think there is something about the summer that brings the positive and exciting vibes. I don't know. Uh, the through the years official position on summer, pretty neat. Yeah, we like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, one other note uh, Chris Johnson had from his PW Torch live report, which I'm glad because a lot of times cage match does not catch all the dark matches, and this was one. You know, it's not a special one, but I did think his note was a little bit interesting. Um, 
Chris Johnson wrote that there was a pre-show match for the show. It was Bobby Dempsey, Mystico Fantastico, and Rhett Titus defeated CK3, Shane Hagedorn, and, quote, another wrestler he did not know the name of. Um, he wrote, this was the best pre-show match I have ever seen on a Ring of Honor card. CK3 is a real good talent, and I hope he gets more chances. That last line kind of sad because I looked it up on Cage Match. He gets one more dark match a few months from now, and then he's done in Ring of Honor forever. So he uh, he will not get more chances. But I wonder – I don't know how many shows Chris Johnson saw, but it's interesting that he went out of his way to say, like, this is the best pre-show match I've ever seen in Ring of Honor. So um, we move on to the show proper, though. We open up with a shot of the Ring of Honor students setting up the ring before the show as a slightly ominous guitar riff plays. Get ready to hear that guitar riff multiple times. Oh, I'd say, I'd say it's more than slightly ominous. <laughs> uh, BJ Whitmer dragging his luggage behind him on that little, in a little wheelie case. He walks to the ring, jumps in it. He surveys all that he sees. He's very serious. A couple members, uh, student, uh, Ring of Honor students with gloves, then like, carry an entire bale of barbed wire to him they just put in the ring and bj just drops to his knees and stares at it and that's the entire opening segment so uh almost like he's like almost like he's like praying to the barbed wire (laughs) we'll see these segments throughout the show i would put these under i appreciate the idea in in execution, kind of goofy. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I will I, I will say this: the one thing it does accomplish, it makes BJ Whitmer seem like the star of the show, and like it does. that's cool for him. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, next, we join Homicide outside the building. He thinks it's ironic that Jim Cornette and Adam Pierce aren't at the double shot this weekend, uh, especially after what they just did. Obviously, at the the, the show closing angle at uh, Cage of Death. Homicide says he and Cornette now have a personal issue they're going to have to solve. He calls Adam Pierce Cornette's butt buddy and says he's going to get it too. Uh, Homicide says his son was at Cage of Death and he saw Homicide get beaten by them, you know, at the show. And then he strangely feels the need at this point to add in his promo. I didn't know my son was in the crowd, but when I was getting, but he was with my family. And when I got hit with those belt lashes on my back, I saw my son's face. So I wonder if he felt like he just had to mention that part just to be like, I wasn't a. I wasn't crazy to bring my son there. Like I didn't know they were bringing him. I mean, I th- I, just, I do think that's probably what it was. Like if I like, yeah. it seems it sounds bad for me to bring my son to that show. Yeah, yeah. Like it's funny. Like just the character of homicide being like cognizant of like, no, no, I'm not. You know, I'm not a reckless parent. Everybody, but um, homicide says he loves being in Corinth's face that night as he's hated him for twenty years since the Midnight Express was feuding with the Rock and Roll Express. Homicide's I, gonna I, re- get I really enjoyed that because he was like yelling. Like the mid the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll. Like he just he like he was just like all of a sudden like I hated you since then. I I appreciated that. Yeah, homicide. Anyone that's like talked about him, big old school wrestling fan who kind of knows his history. So like it's great that he like again that's a very real thing where you know he can easily draw upon that history. Like he's probably a guy who has watched tapes of that extensively. So um. Homicide then says, I'm going to get my match with Steve Carino. I'm going to get my world title shot, and I'm going to make a statement tonight when I pin Brian Danielson in the four-corner survival match. He then says he's going to do – and this is a quote that Matt and I, I know we both love this quote. He then says he's going to go to Corn- Jim Cornette's home and do, quote, things that people don't love, unquote. 
Uh, Mac, he's gonna he's gonna drink most of the orange juice and leave just a dribble in the fridge. Right. I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, we were trying to come up with like different things that people don't love when you when you're a guest in their house, and it's like, yeah, play music too loud, track mud on the carpet, like chew with your mouth open at the dinner table. Yeah, yeah, put yeah, or like you know you know when you um instead of uh, just drinking the orange juice or like just you pour the orange juice and then you only like you put the cap back on but don't actually turn it so oh, like yeah so that that falls off or um i don't know some people you know probably don't like it if you leave the toilet seat up uh <laughs> maybe you um you share uh you know you're in the guest bedroom and you play the tv too loud or you snore really loud yeah he's gonna do all those things I want this to just keep going. I want to see. I wanted to see how long you could go. Just do another fifteen minutes of annoying things. Well, um, um, listeners, please um, feel free and please uh, tag us in your tweets about things that people don't love when you go over their house. <laughs> so, um, Matt, th- we rarely ever talk about like our thoughts on the show. We before the show, we save it for unless there's something that really speaks to one of us. We save it for the podcast, but you mentioned to me, you know, I really like that homicide promo, and I, I like, I thought it was good, but I was kind of disappointed by it because I, I feel like, um, homicide's pretty mad here, but I've seen him angrier in other promos, and I was maybe just my expectations too were too high, but after that, like we talked about the last show, ends with maybe the like big most heavy heat old school super dour note angle in ring of honor history and you know homicide completely humiliated and beaten and screwed and he's not that much angry i thought he'd be even angrier well you let know? me let me just be clear when i said i love this promo i thought it was really unintentionally funny <laughs> that's all i meant i don't think it was like i don't think it was like a quality follow-up in the sense that like yeah totally he'd been pissed for like two months about constantly being screwed by roh this was the ultimate screwing and he he's back and he just cuts like a fairly calm promo against a rival and then he just like is it yeah but you know what i'm gonna wrestle in this four corners match you know like i I, and and with the stipulation that if you beat danielson you get a title shot but like he already was supposed to have a title shot anyway he just is he's just a guy on the show after i mean i guess i guess it's like you can't do a big angle with him every single show because there's just too many shows and you just have to have him wrestle matches sometimes so i understand that's what roh is but it, it is it is awkward to be have be the immediate follow up. The other thing is that like um, Cornette is not there, so there's that limits what you can do. But I suppose they could have done something where he sort of acts like CM Punk, where on the show where he's trying to be like who beat up Lucy, where he's just like a presence and just wreaking havoc because he's so pissed off. That would be yeah. one other way to go about it. No, I completely agree, and that's a great point, which is they're kind of in a bind now. Like, like when we read that quote from Gabe Zapolsky on the last show where he mentioned, like, I don't know why, like, the Cornette homicide feud kind of petered out after, you know, the la- the death of Dishonor 4 and the Cage of Death, that hot angle to start. I think one of the reasons is because, unfortunately, 
the one half of that angle isn't around for a whole bunch of shows immediately after you shoot that hot angle. He's not there to directly respond or get into it. And Adam Pierce isn't even, you know, like homicide bitches in the promo, you know, at least you could have attacked him or done something with him as a surrogate. He can't even do that on this double shot. So yeah, instead it feels kind of flat where homicides first match in ring of honor after this crazy angle is like a match where He's not really has a giant be- – I mean it's to kind of maybe set up a bit more with the Danielson title shot we know is coming. But like he doesn't win the match. He doesn't lose the match. It's not really anything that's advancing the Cornet feud. And like we both mentioned this promo, he's he's mad, but he's not that mad. It's, it's just kind of a flat continuation of a very major moment. Yep. Um, that brings us to the opening match of the card, of the main card. Jimmy Jacobs, scored to the ring by Lacey, defeats Trick Davis via pinfall in 6 minutes, 57 seconds, after he hit the top rope back sent on. Matt, before we throw it to you in the match, something we're both very excited to talk about. So this is a little piece of Ring of Honor history that if you did not live through this, um, you will not appreciate this. But, you know, Ring of Honor, wrestling companies love cryptic teases. We love getting excited for them. We love when they pay off. We hate when they're disappointing. Ring of Honor had a couple, like, things in their newswire where they would write stuff like, ROH, you know, the, the, uh, the robot arm, ROH, BOT arm will debut. You know, the robot arm is coming. The robot arm is coming soon. Get ready. The robot arm will be, make its debut on the War of the Wire 2 home release. And Matt, the robot arm, for those who do not know, is a new name graphic when wrestlers make their entrance that basically has a mid nineties WCW Saturday night esque like Saturday Night Live. Wow, I was gonna say Saturday Night Live. No, Saturday Night Live never went Terminator. But like, if you've ever seen the mid nineties WCW Saturday Night thing where it's, it's basically aping the Terminator, it's basically like a robot arm like that is pushing forward the nameplate for each wrestler's injury. It's basically a new name graphic. That's it. Yeah, it's a new Chiron for wrestlers' names. I thought this was one of the funniest pranks Gabe has ever done. I really appreciated it. I loved it. This would be like – it's like the equivalent of Tony Khan has a big announcement. And like the big <laughs> announcement is there's a new way that we have wrestler name graphics. Would they they come out? Like it would be like that. I really I really loved it. And the amazing thing is like Ring of Honor has had multiple different graphics, you know, Chirons throughout their history. So it's not like, oh, we're changing the classic you've known and loved for years. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. They, cha- they change it like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the one time they're like, let's, let's really like, yeah, this had to have been like, they had to have had a smirk on their face when they wrote these. 100%. Up. It's just, yeah. It's just hilarious. But Matt, um, what do you think about this match? You know, Jimmy Jacobs continued. Trick Davis, a guy gets a little bit of spot work in Ring of Honor at this point, you know, a regular in IWA Mid-South. What did you think about this match? Well, my favorite part actually happens right before the match, which is when they're coming down to the ring, uh, a fan in the front row yells, Lacey, you are way too good for him. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's like deja vu. I thought I heard that and on maybe on another DVD. And then Jimmy Jacobs literally looks the fan and says, you said that on the last DVD too. I got it. <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, he really does just say that on every show. Like, I, that's very funny. Um, so I enjoyed that Jimmy also noticed that. It also tells me that Jimmy Jacobs watches back the DVDs. That's, that's good. I bet you a lot of the wrestlers don't do that. Um, on, so. on the BJ Whitmer shooter view, he talks about like, um, watching at least he, he references something on the, uh, on the, he says, if you watch the DVD of, you know, the, where I, the show I broke my ankle on, like he points out, so I was like, I had that same thought you just had, which is like, wow, I wonder how many wrestlers actually go back 
and watch their DVDs. Well, that match, especially the one where he broke his ankle, that's like um, that probably would have been a traumatic match for him to watch back because that like was a match where he and Jimmy both almost died. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, I um, I thought that this was a a good opener. Like as far as things go, I um, it was focused work, fast pace. There was a hot crowd. So when I say really good, like, I don't mean like it's like a really good match, like three and a half stars or anything, but like just good for an opener in the sense that it was, it was still short. They didn't try to have a great match, but it was fast paced. Um, you know, Trick Davis, you know, he, he does some of that like arm draggy stuff that you do at the beginning of a match. And then Jimmy Jacobs just blocks one and just repeatedly stomps down on, on Davis's back and he kind of works over the back a little bit. You could see that he's being more aggressive here. You know, he's not doing as much like uh, comedy playing to the crowd. He still plays to the crowd, but it's, you know, he's definitely focused and not running out of the ring to, you know, hug Lacey or whatever. Um, he goes for a lot of covers, which, you know, that's Lacey's like, yeah, I want you to win the match. I want you to win the match. So it shows that he's following her orders. Um, he does this really cool sort of messy flying headbutt thing with Davis standing up. And it almost seems like, like if Jacobs was off by a little bit more, he would have gone head first into the mat. Did you notice that spot? Yeah. And I, I was trying to think, have I, have we ever seen that before or not? Cause I was thinking maybe once, I don't know, but I thought, wow, that's like a crazy spot to do. Basically he does a flying headbutt to a guy that's standing up and then he just has his head hit him in the chest. Yeah. Like, and, and the angle is such that it's like, that was a really close call. But yeah. um, at one point, Davis misses a move at the turnbuckle, and Jacobs hits a, a double stomp to his back. Um, he pulls Davis out of the corner, but Davis pulls Jacobs into his knees, gets a two count on that. Um, Jacobs avoids an up and over, catches Davis, hits a Death Valley driver, then gets the sent on bomb for the win. Um, which I thought was cool for him to win with a move other than the Contra Code, too. So there's a lot I liked about this match. Um, I would say, considering it's a short ROH opener, I would say it was definitely above the average for that. I think the hot crowd helped, too. But I just like the focus that Jacobs had. I really th- think that he's coming into his own in a lot of ways during this era. Yeah, I uh, I completely agree. Uh, I thought this was like above average, like you. There's you know there's a limit you can go for like a seven minute opener, but the one thing I always say, I think we've seen one or two other matches like this. It's always weird in this era to see a Jimmy Jacobs in a match where he's like the more push veteran that's kind of dominating the offense and leading the match because it almost feels a little unnatural to me because Jimmy Jacobs, because of his stature and sometimes his push, he's almost always, even in matches where he's very competitive with his opponents, he's always like working under from underneath and really fighting to earn his comebacks. He's very rarely the front runner. He's like, he's like the front runner in this match. And I thought he was very good though at, um, you know, this doesn't, he gives Davis just enough so it doesn't feel like a squash. I think there's always an art to that, but still enough where you feel like, oh no, Jimmy Jacobs like is the better wrestler. He was fairly dominant here, but he gives enough to, you know, show off a little, a little bit. And yeah, I love that opening thing, just the jousting he had with that fan you mentioned before the match even started. And I also thought like Jacobs came to this match with no fewer than four spots in a seven minute match that I've never or rarely seen from him in Ring of Honor, which was, you know, the headbutt spot to the chest that you that you talked about. Um when he he has um 
Trick Davis lying on his stomach on the mat, and he pulls Davis's arms behind him and just rams him like chest first with his arms, almost like a curb stomp without like the stomp over and over again. I thought that was neat. You know, he, at one point he does his usual running dropkick on the outside where he has his opponent's head. He's lying on the mat. He puts his head right up against the ring post, and Jacobs then goes to the outside, does a running drop kick. You know, drop kicks the guy's head against the ring post, and he does it to Davis, and then he tries to do it later a second time, but um, Trick Davis moves, and Jacobs crotches himself from like a running start on the ring post on the outside. I thought, wow, that's kind of neat. And then even at the near the end, where um, Jacobs does that move it's hard to describe but you've seen everyone's seen it a bunch of times where uh trick davis is lying in the ring corner on his butt and uh he's grabbing onto the ropes with his hands and uh jacobs does the thing where you grab the guy by the feet and you kind of yank him up you know in the air like to maybe to drop him back down a power bomb or something and instead in mid-air davis turns it into a code breaker which was like you know pre-jericho code breaker i thought oh man that's really cool so overall you know a good little opener and uh the robot arm and that that fan got busted for doing a repeat. So good stuff. But <laughs> uh, next we go to Dave Prezak backstage where he is joined by Colt Cabana and his opponent for tonight, Nigel McGinnis. They go over their last feud, the feud that, you know, that they're basically reprising for one night tonight. Nigel says tonight, though, is only one and done. This is just one match. We're not starting everything over again. He goes, tomorrow I'm going to go and beat that clubfoot clamdinger Brian Danielson to unify the peer in the world titles. Cabana gets annoyed, not that uh, Nigel, you know, is looking past him, but that Nigel used the word unified, calling it, quote, the Queen's English, unquote. So that was too highfalutin, the word unified for, um, <laughs> yeah. for Colt Cabana. That's very funny. Um, Colt says it's not about who's smarter in the ring. It's about who's the best wrestler in the ring. And then Colt says he's going to win. And he also emphasizes that tonight is one and done. So that's something they, in, they really stressed on, on a previous show. And they're really stressing tonight. Like, Hey, for whatever reason, they really want to make sure, you know, and this is going, is going to be the case. Like this is one rematch. We're not doing the feud again. Just, just tonight. At this point, Gabe says, cut from behind the camera. We get a classic Ring of Honor. The camera's still rolling vignette where um, Prezak leaves. And then Nigel, you know, who's kind of starting to show signs of being a little more laid back, baby. He uh, puts his arm around Cole. He's like, who were you in the car with the other night? Which he's referring to a promo that happened on the Ring of Honor video wire where um, there was um, wrestlers talking about, oh, Colt's in the, you know, his car, he's in the parking lot. The car's rocking. He's with some girl, man. And, you know, we don't know who the girl is. So Nigel even says, I hear, I hear the car was rocking. And Colt says, she was the dog's bollocks. What a minge on this one. But then now, Colt plays. Yeah, now, it's funny that Colt doesn't know the word unify, but he does still minge. <laughs> oh, he knows, he knows the, the right or the wrong words, his British words, and he's fine with those. Um, Colt plays coy at this point. He goes, you know, it could have been anyone in the car with me. There's so many, and I don't kiss and tell. So continuing the lazy storyline there. Um, Matt, do you have any thoughts about this other than the use of dogs, bollocks, and minge? <laughs> not, not exactly. Yeah, there was when, – when Nigel did that, I was like, oh, is he turning face already? And then I watched the match, and I was like, maybe not quite. But I – um. I did like, you know, I like that whenever Nigel calls Danielson a, a clam digger and this time a clubfoot clam digger. And what I especially made me happy was realizing, oh, I just heard Nigel say that on commentary about Danielson just a f- few months ago in, in 2023. It's like, man, things really are, do things really do come full circle, you know? So it's, it's nice that we're getting all the old hits I mean, played again. 
including some other old hits that we've been begging for for a while, possibly coming up real soon on the uh, new AEW show, which I think they're calling Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I want the AEW arm to introduce CM Punk versus uh, Samoa Joe. Yes. <laughs> let's, let's really go all the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's also crazy. We always talk about the way that Ring of Honor timeline syncs up with us that, uh, you know, there's also, who knows if it will happen, but Nigel McGuinness, who knows if he, steps into the ring one more time in the UK in a few shows man on through the years we'll be covering Ring of Honor in the UK which uh I have to think that if Nigel does get back into the ring for like to do a real match Danielson has to be on the list of people he's going to wrestle you know yeah, I mean, Nigel, all I saw was, you know, people speculating. I think Nigel's done one recent media interview where he was, he basically almost kind of poo pooed it, where he's like, oh, it take a lot of work and stuff. But he was like, oh, if they sell out Wembley, I might have to dust off the boots. And it's like, well, I don't know if they'll sell it out, but they're going to do a giant crowd. Like, I mean, they've, they're he, all, he, yeah, they already have done a giant crowd. So, yeah. So, like, if he's ever going to be tempted to do it again, like, I would say to him, I don't know what his physical you know, status is, but if you were ever in your back pocket thinking maybe in the right setting, I could have one more match. I would say this is the time to have, you know, that show, if it, you know, would be the time to have a match. If you have yeah. one more. In you. If Nigel is going to ever come out of retirement to show his minge to the fans, it's got to <laughs> be in the UK. Him missing the show, if he's capable of doing it and could do it safely would be the dog's bollocks. But, um, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Um, Damien, I guess it depends on your uh, – you know I'm not even going to finish this. Let's, um, just, let's just move right along. <laughs> let's move on to Davey Richards and Jarrell Clark defeated the embassy of Jimmy Rave and Sal Renaro, scored to the ring by Daisy Hayes. Um, the, they win via submission in eight, in 15 minutes, 48 seconds, when Davey Richards makes Jimmy Rave tap up uh, – tap out to the stretch muffler uh during the ring entrance uh rave takes a, to- a roll of toilet paper to the head and does one of my favorite things during a jimmy rave entrance which is not when that happens but when jimmy rave decides to bump and sell it which he doesn't always do and he does that here he bumps to the mat sells it like he you know like the candy assassination uh then later on when richard makes his r- way to the ring he grabs one of the rolls of toilet paper and he throws it at daisy hayes and then daisy hayes has to be like pulled away from somewhere else. and i love this little storyline they've been kind of doing just through their promos and her just her little work as a manager where like basically she has no fear of any of these guys and like a constantly is always in the promos being like i should you should have let me take them out and i love at this point you know salvernal's having to hold daisy hayes back from like attacking davy richards and then daisy actually slaps salvernal for that and he sells it so we're continuing that sell is um Kind of the bitch, the the dog's bullocks of uh of of this stable, but it's funny that like when 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 Daisy turned and joined the embassy at I believe it was Vendetta in uh two thousand and five, we were both like oh we didn't totally remember Daisy Hayes turning and joining the embassy, but it's like it's weird because she's been such a big part of that act and she's been great in that act. I I really think she's added a lot. To the to Jimmy Rave's entire shtick and just the embassy in general, I've been really impressed watching her stuff and watching what she's brought to the table during this whole era that we've been covering. I I agree, and like one thing I remember from a, just a Jimmy Rave shooter interview was him talking about like how much he always enjoyed like having all these pieces to work with, like as an entourage with the embassy, and how he'd always try and work hard to make sure they like they all had something to do in matches, even in inter- interference and stuff. And you can really see it, like even like when Mike Cruel was temporarily there, like they always like everyone in the embassy, they always get have a line in the promos, they always seem to have a bit of a more of a character to them than you'd expect. They have like a very defined role, even. 
even in matches like this, it feels like they always work pretty hard to make sure DC gets like at least one notable spot interfering. Like it feels like they worked with the embassy. They worked really hard to make sure no matter how small you were in the group, you always got a little bit of something at least, which is, which is nice because a lot of stables, you don't always get that. But, um, I would say this match is another example of how much of a dependable old school mid card heel Jimmy Rave was. Like I know Rave and Morale were friends before this, and they they had worked in the same circles and feds prior to this. But this is only their second match together in in this new embassy tag formulation, and so much of their act is already set in stone because they're doing so many of the things they already just did in the first match they had together. Like they're already repeating um, everything from Sal getting slapped by Rave during the match. The Sal cleans off the opponent's hands. Of where they can shake Jimmy's hand to make sure like it's all sterile for Jimmy bit. There's doing bits where like there's moments in the match where Sal's only getting control because rave as the illegal man goes out of his way to like interfere and get Sal like the control, all that stuff, you know, was right there from the first match they had together here. They're doing it again here, but it also continues the weird story we talked about in their first match together, which is they continue to act on commentary in, in the wrestling, like how Sal is eight miles below everyone else in the stable. When again, I won't belabor the point. He's the only one here <laughs> that's ever held a Ring of Honor title, but I realized they thought that would be like the story that would help get him over. Um, as far as the match itself, I would say this is like a Jimmy Rave undercard match. He briefly stalls, he heals a bit. Daisy Hayes interferes in a neat little uh, triple drop kick that all three of the embassy do to someone in the corner. My one issue is that my favorite Jimmy Rave matches are when he finds this really nice balance between doing the old school heel stuff that no one else on the cards generally do, but he still kicks up into high enough gear with his opponent that it also kind of satisfies from an actor standpoint. I thought this match was just a little bit off in that latter aspect. I felt like Richard and Clark are two guys who can do really cool stuff. They get to do some of it here, but rather than a showcase for them, this felt like much more like a like a Jimmy Rave match, one that would have been very similar that he could have done with a variety of opponents. And I would have liked to see maybe a bit more of the faces on offense, maybe a bit more of a crazier run of offense at the end, but it's still like a decent, you know, above average, you know, Jimmy rave tag match. You do get to see some stuff from Jarrell and, and Richards, but Oh, and also, if you're wondering why Date and Prince Nana isn't here, as always in the Midwest shows, it's always a coincidence when they do the Midwest shows that Prince Nana is off and away, as uh, Dave Prezak would mention, on government business. So uh, that government business is always picking up when when they have to go to uh, Dayton and uh, Chicago, Matt. Nana does get a We Want Nana chant, which you don't typically get for a heel, but I have to say Nana does deserve it, because if I was yes. at a show, I would I would also want Nana. Um, now, I, I pretty much agree with what you said. I thought this was a, a pretty good match, like, good, good tag match, and that everyone's good. I, you know, I think we both agree that we're fans of Jarrell Clark's work that we've seen so far, uh, what he's done in ROH. I, I, I thought, I wonder, like, how random his inclusion in this is, in the sense of, like, what does he have to do with this? And I, I was wondering, cause I don't really, didn't really follow FIP, if, if there was some sort of feud with Clark and Renaro and FIP. At some point, and maybe that's why he was there. I do know that la- later on, he's in a he's in a faction with Renaro, um, but I don't think that existed uh, in two thousand and six. Um, but I I do I do enjoy it. I did I also enjoyed being reminded that Clark's submission move was called the Clark Bar. <laughs> I, I definitely <laughs> appreciate fun names, uh, and and I agree with you that like the one thing that brought this down from the embassy match at death before dishonor was the 
finishing sequence after Rave get, after Richards gets the hot tag was not as hot or fast paced as the one at Death Before Dishonor. But I did think the match was well structured. I thought you know, it was fun, a lot of fun character work, as there almost always is in these embassy matches. So I still thought it was pretty good. And it is interesting where, you know, this is a feud. Ring of Honor does a lot of, like, you know, parody booking or trying to keep a lot of plates there and keep everyone with some heat. And this Richards feud is really notable. Again, you know, it's 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 Rave taking the finish here. Like, they're just, you know, Rave doesn't really get his comeback. Like, Richards going to face him in one more singles. He's going to win again. Like, this is about as dominant a mid-card feud as you'll see in Ring of Honor where, you know, Rave lo- loses in the beginning, he loses in the middle, and he's going to lose in the end. So... Um, yeah, I mean, so when you say it's about as dominant, it's 100% dominant. Like, there's, yeah. no, there's just, it's just, it's just one guy wins all the matches. And I did not put this in the notes, but aside, I should have brought this up. I don't even know, I forget some of the details now, but I noticed this in a week or two ago. Um, I don't know if you saw this, probably not, Matt, but, uh, a long time ago, probably months ago, there's probably some neat Jarrell Clark spot in one of the shows we were watching where occasionally if I see a really neat spot, I'll, I'll clip it and put it on Twitter. And, um, someone made a, some comment like, Oh, like it was a Jarrell Clark doing a really cool thing. And I forget exactly the fans comment, but someone found it on Twitter and was like, Oh, like I bet he didn't set it up with a move after or he, or he didn't do something. He just no sold or whatever after something like that. And then I saw the other day in my mentions, Jarrell Clark, who much have been sent, searching his name, just replies to the guy and he just like clips the next spot to refute the guy's point. Doesn't say anything to him. <laughs> I just thought, good, good on you, Jarrell Clark. Like you also are going to clip the shows, but this time to prove a point, like <laughs> I, 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 he wasn't like, you know, fuck you. He was just like, I, I also have the DVD and I can show you that you're wrong, sir. And so I was like, good on Jarrell Clark, but, um, hope you're doing well, Jarrell. But, um, Next, we join BJ Whitmer backstage as he tapes up his fists while more of that heavy guitar riff plays. I wrote my notes. This goes on for slightly too long, but that's mostly what I have to say about that. Um, that brings us to uh, the Ring of Honor pure title match. Nigel McGuinness defeated Colt Cabana by countout in 1345. Now, Matt, before I want your overall thoughts, I want to ask you something first before we get to it. Did you notice anything weird about the finish? Um, let me go back to my notes. When you say weird, I guess, I guess it depends on what you're getting at. If you, um, if, if, uh, I mean, when you tell me, I might have noticed it, but there's no, there's nothing that I would describe as weird based on what I noticed. Good, because, um, a lot of times in my life when I don't catch something or, or something flies over my head, like you're my metric of if I should have known it or not. So like if Matt doesn't know it, I feel better about myself. So here's the thing I didn't notice and I'll point it out and then we'll get the overall thoughts on the match. But um, it, it, for those who haven't seen the match, it's a standard. We'll describe it in detail in a second. Nigel McGinnis kind of cheat not kind of cheating shitty count out finish the way that he's been doing in this gimmick as pure champion. And I didn't notice anything out of the ordinary for it. And then after I watched the show, when I was going through uh, doing my research, I found this note in the Observer from a lot from Dave Meltzer getting live notes from people. He wrote, "In a pure title match, Nigel McGuinness was ruled the winner over Colt Cabana via countout. This had a screwed up finish. This was supposed the countout was supposed to be the finish, but McGuinness actually didn't beat the twenty count and was still out of the ring. Fans didn't exactly like that, and they announced him the winner anyway. This will be." Edited on the DVD to appear that McGinnis did get back in the ring on time. Now, Matt, I read this and I go, am I insane? I didn't notice that at all. So, Matt, I go back and watch this, 
they do not edit the, the, the one this is true and two they do not edit the finish at all if you pay attention you won't most people probably won't if, if you and i didn't notice it but if you listen to um todd sinclair count as the final little angle where nigel attacks colt from behind shoves him under the ring todd sinclair actually counts to 20 like a full second before nigel goes in the ring and they do not edit it out or I don't know if that would have even been possible. They don't stay too long on the post-match reaction, so if the crowd did have a negative reaction. But I did not notice that. But if anyone that is going to watch the match afterwards, it absolutely should have been a double countout, and it, and it isn't. Well, I get. Well, that's. I mean, I guess it's clever sleight of hand in the sense of like they just took the they just took for granted that people would not be paying attention to Sinclair's count. They would be watching the wrestlers and listening to the commentary, and it seems like they were right. So. <laughs> I, um, yeah, we both missed it again because yeah. yeah, the angle is happening right a second before he gets in the ring. So you're too busy. You're, no one's like, I'm focusing on the ref reciting a number that I yeah. know is coming. No, it's, it's, you, it's, you a just, cla- it's a classic misdirection magic trick. Like yeah. you're just you're just not don't notice it because you're not paying attention. So, you know what? I probably would have done the same thing if I just would have not edited it and been like, yeah, no one will care. <laughs> no one will notice. And uh, so, until they listen to this annoying match? ass podcast by us. <laughs> yeah, now that we've shined a spotlight to the, uh, the, I mean, we do, I, I am, I haven't seen our listenership in a long, long time. I imagine we do decently, but like, I don't know how many people are going back. I don't know some people are. I, can, like, I mean, I could tell you the, the listenership if you want to know. I, I, I could add up all the different places where people watch and tell you. That might just depress me at this point. So, uh, Matt, what'd you think about, uh, what'd you think about the match? I'm just curious to know if you'd be depressed. If a lot of people listen to us or depressed, if not enough people listen to us, because I guess I could see someone being depressed at either, either metric. Um, um, I, um, so, okay. So it's, it was an interesting match in that it felt like a tribute match to their 2005 feud. Like that first, like, let's say two thirds of the match, they were doing all their like comedy stuff slash, um, uh, European artful dodger, silly re- headlock reversals, and you know, playing with the referee and stuff like that. And it was definitely, you know, a lot of allusions to their their series the year before, where they were working that style. Um, so, if you really enjoyed that series, I could see you enjoying this part. Just to be like, oh yeah, it's an homage to the, but it, but it didn't feel like the genuine article. You know what I mean? Like it didn't feel like they yeah. were really fighting to win it felt like they were just having fun playing with their few with their series of matches so i could see either reaction to that and then the last part of the match they sort of very subtle suddenly get much more intense and the finish becomes basically you know because during the a lot of the match nigel's not really doing being particularly heelish at all in fact you know he does that thing at the beginning where Todd Sinclair uh, explains the rules, and usually he like interrupts him and does a heel promo. But instead, this time he just said to Sinclair, "You know, thank you very much for for explaining the rules." Like it was like, <laughs> and, and I actually wrote this. I said, "Is he being a disingenuous little scamp, or is this a, his official face turn?" And I think. <laughs> We could probably say at the end it, it was that he was being a disingenuous little scamp, right? Yeah. Um, so he's done a few of these like count out, like shady count out finishes. I thought this one was probably the most clever in the sense of he leaves, he escapes the ring after Cabana gets a bunch of offense. 
and he says, tomorrow's the biggest match in my career. He apologizes to the, to the crowd, but he says he can't finish the match. And he says, no one wants to see a cheap count out. So should, Cabana should come out and take the count out with him. <laughs> it's the only <laughs> fair thing to do, Nigel says, which I was very funny. Um, because the pure title rules are such that if Nigel gets counted out and Colt doesn't, Nigel loses the title, right? That's yeah. the, that's the rule. So, Cabana comes out. He says, what do you take before? And and then he uses the uh, R word, Nigel. And Colt refers to himself as a shy town thug, which is also very <laughs> funny. And he won't take Nigel's count out. And Colt says, I'm going in and you could stay here or wrestle me. And that's, of course, when Nigel jumps in from behind, rolls him under the ring, which I thought was an, a very funny extra little touch, and then gets in just I guess after the 20 count, but we were supposed to pretend it's just before the 20 count. So, um, I, I mean, that definitely makes Colt look as stupid as humanly possible, <laughs> but I guess we have established that he doesn't know what the word unify means. So I guess his character at this point is that he's just incredibly stupid. Um, well, it's funny cause his pro then that pro we just recapped Colt just said, it's not about who's the smarter wrestler. It's about who's the, uh, the better wrestler. It's like this match was like, no, it's about who's the smarter wrestler. Cause he completely clowned you. Yeah. But it's also funny that like, They've decided that Colt's gimmick, at least for a little while, is that he's just like full on really dumb. Um, <laughs> like I like he's like a dumb he's become a dumb jock that's just like banging babes in the car. Like which I don't feel like was ever Colt's character before this or after this. There's just like this few month period where this is who Colt Cabana is. I don't think it fits him, but that's what they went with. And I guess the finish does fit that. So I actually enjoyed the finish. I've read some reviews of people that really didn't like it. I enjoyed it. The, the match itself, I, um, I don't know. I, I feel like it was just a little bit too much of a, a tribute act for me. Um, uh, but there was some funny stuff. There was, um, you know, like all the stuff where, uh, where, uh, Colt grabs Sinclair's hand to get out of the headlock. And then, um, there was another spot where let me where um, Colt does like a neck bridge while on top of top of Nigel and Nigel yells, "Get him off of me!" And then he, yeah, yells, he just won't let go of the bridge. Yeah, yeah. And then he yells at Sinclair, like, "Like whose side are you on?" Which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I like the finish more than I like the match itself. Yeah, I I agree here too with you. Um. Uh, this felt like one of those first half of a double shot B show matches where yeah. two talented pr- performers are not going all out the way they could. And oftentimes those kind of matches disappoint me. This one didn't disappoint me that much because uh, a lot of those disappointing B show matches, they're like bad versions of like, or stripped down versions of like big ring of honor main event style matches where it's just like kind of a, colorless match with less action where this was like a slowed down version of, as you said of more of their earlier comedy European network inspired stuff. And even though this was them playing the hits and we've seen most of this stuff done better, not just better, but better against each other. It was still different enough on this card and we don't see it off it that often these days in ring of honor. I was like, Oh, even a, like a B level version of this is, is enjoyable enough, you know, getting some commie, some, some fun mat work, stuff like that. But yeah, if you're expecting this to be close to like their very best matches, you know, this isn't going to be a soccer ride or anything like that. This is on that level. Um, but I also, you know, knowing that we're losing our beautiful Nigel, more comedic 
you know, rapscallion boy is going to become more serious, big bomb throwing Nigel. I, I do in some ways savor these last few performances where he kind of goes to this. In fact, this match is such a throwback that we've documented that like the evolution of Nigel would, when he started before he did the rebound lariat for a few shows, he did like the rebound off the ropes and then he would end in a roll up for some reason. This is such a throwback in this match when he does the rebound off the ropes, even though he's just been doing the rebound lariat to that rebound for months and months now, he does the roll up again. So it, it's a very much, it's like these two guys decide to go in a time machine from like a year and a half ago and, and be who they were then, except for, as you mentioned, cult in full, stupid mode now. Um, the ending, uh, I can see both sides. I did like it. Um, I, I, at first I wrote my notes. I don't know if I like it or I don't, but I like the almost meta absurdity of it where, you know, like you mentioned, you know, Nigel is selling an ankle injury during the match and then he, or a knee injury. And then he goes outside. It's like, Hey, could you do it? Double count. I have the biggest match of my life tomorrow. This isn't fair. You know, could we just do it? And I, I love the fact that he calls the, he, I, I love the fact that he goes, I'd love to finish this match for you. Nice people. The fact that he calls the crowd nice people for some reason just got to me. And, um, it, it's so met in the sense of we all know Nigel always loses. He's been winning matches by count. The fact that he gets on the mic and it's like, nobody wants to see a, a, a shitty count out finish. And then Colt comes out. And it's like, you know, I'm not going to fall for this. And then you see a shitty count out finish and Colt does fall for this. Like people are either going to love or hate that. I, I ended up, the more I think about it, the more I think I love that. Uh, it sounds like you did too. I can see though why people would absolutely hate that so i thought this was like a low good this is an enjoyable enough match and i did have one other thing i would say matt that i um i like even though i hate which is i love documenting any time in a pure match where there's an unintentional like moment where the rules should have been used and they're then ignored because the ref because no one planned for it and the moment in this match is early on in this match is a moment where nigel's like selling on his ass near the ropes and he's trying to get back to his feet so he grabs onto a rope to help him get back to his feet and during that moment colt grabs nigel is like trying to pull him off the ropes and the ref breaks them up he's like no he's touch grabbing the ropes you're like you can't do this and so the crowd's all expecting oh you're gonna call for a rope break and the ref does not call for a rope break, and they all start booing and going apeshit for booing, uh, booing the, the the fact that you know he essentially he got Nigel got a rope break, and the ref decided not to call a rope break, and then Nigel he goes and he shakes the ref's hand, <laughs> and I thought that's some great little that I that, that all seemed like that was not an intentional spot, but I just love that Nigel in the moment is just like I know what my character would do here, and just like sucks up to the ref more. I thought that was very cute, but I agree. I mean, and you know, it just. Watching these finishes just make me think like ROH has not done anything too clever or creative with the pure title since bringing it back in these matches. Yeah. Like let's let's bring back some fun and creativity in some of these pure title matches. Yeah, we talked about that on another show, but yeah, I will. We we will continue to campaign. There's been enough time. Some the idea is fresh again. You can do one more heel reign like this. Let's have let's have let's have Shibata uh, uh, goad somebody outside to take a count out. (laughs) (laughs) He's always like, "I'd love to finish this match for you, nice people, but uh, you know, um, you know, my have you guys ever heard about my brain injury? You know, that (laughs) time that Dave Meltzer said my brain got removed from my skull and then they put it back in, and (laughs) then he just that'd be funny. That would be a funny promo from Shibata if he actually mentioned like, remember how Dave Meltzer said that. <laughs> I would love that. more than any, not more top 
three things I want from my life now in general, not just wrestling related. But um, next we get a video clip of Brian Danielson turning on Samoa Joe at Cage of Death at the last show, Death Before Dishonor <laughs> 4. As a Gabe Zapolsky voiceover tells us, Joe was out this weekend with a knee injury suffered as a result of that Brian Danielson chop block. But he d- does add that Joe will be contributing a video message later in the show and that also that he has signed a contract to face Brian Danielson for the Ring of Honor title in a match in the coming weeks for a show that will be titled Fight of the Century. So, yeah, it's the rare double shot, Matt, that we do not get Samoa Joe, which is, I guess, you know, another sign of things to come, which we'll be seeing Joe less, and then we'll be seeing Joe a lot less in not in the not too distant future. So, uh, yeah, and uh, that brings us to Matt Seidel defeating finally Christopher Daniels, scored to the ring by Allison Danger via pinfall in thirteen twenty six after he pit he uh, won via um. I guess that move Trent Breda calls the crunchy. I, I guess there's probably, I think that's one of those moves that a few wrestlers have used with different names, but uh, kind of like a weird pile driver variation. I would say about this match, Matt, I think I would compare this to like how I felt about the last match, which was this bell had something that often annoys me, but doesn't bug me in this match as much as it usually does. And in this case, it's that Christopher Daniels is kind of grounding his opponent in a bit of a boring way. I think Christopher Daniels is a really talented wrestler, but he can lull me to sleep sometimes, especially more in the last few this year of Ring of Honor. But in this match, it actually has a point because the whole story of this match, of course, is that these two have wrestled each other what feels like a million times. Seidel's lost every time. In fact, the story of this match is Seidel's just coming back from uh, his tour of Dragon Gate. In fact, he's wearing a Dragon Gate jacket with his name on the back as he makes his entrance here he gets like a welcome back chant or that might have been jack Evans. i forget if both of them get a welcome back chant. at least one does but anyway but the idea is seidel when he comes back his request is i want to come back i want to face daniels one more time i need to beat him and so daniels here being the far more established veteran that's beaten him every time it it makes sense for, for Daniels to wrestle this way on this show, to ground him, for Seidel to really have to fight for underneath, to earn his comebacks that come sporadically until the last final few minutes where they're really going back and forth. And so it, it's a way Daniels can wrestle that sometimes I find boring. I felt like it worked better for this match because there was a purpose. And I thought the end of this match was a little elevated by their history because earlier on, Dave Prezak mentions on commentary, Hell, Daniels has been beating Seidel with a different finisher every time. And while I'm sure the live crowd probably wasn't paying too close attention, probably had cut up on the DVDs, and they would pop just as big for those moments regardless, watching at home and knowing that, it did give me a little extra juice when you see, oh, Seidel, you know, like, kicks out of the best moons all ever. He survives the Koji clutch, you know. And then I, I like the ending, too, where um, Seidel turns the Koji clutch into, like, a cradle for a near fall that I totally would have bought into if I was watching this live. And then Daniels immediately gets up looking pissed and aggressively goes for the Angels' wings, almost like with the having the air of like, okay, this kid survived two of my finishers. Enough of this shit. I got to beat him right now. And then Seidel counters the Angels' wings into that crunchy kind of reverse pile driver for the win, which is a nice callback to their last match where um, Seidel went for the Angels' wings and Daniels just flipped it into a pin and won that way. And this time, you know, Seidel has the counter for the Angels' wings and he wins here. I thought overall the match was like a high good it wasn't it wasn't notable enough i go you have to go out of your way and see this i think i might have liked one of their other matches better but i do want to emphasize my last thing how great i thought matt seidel's execution of moves was in this match he just he's one of the smoother wrestlers of his generation at least certainly in the u.s indies and he was so on point here like 
His regular spots were great. He does this awesome tilt-a-whirl head scissors where he starts by springboarding boarding off the ropes into an almost like a bulldog position, and then in midair, like, spins around into a head scissors. Um, he does big jumping off the ropes, like spiking a guy DDT is really cool. That was, that was fantastic, That the way he executed that move. Yeah, I've seen that before, but this is about as good as I've ever seen him hit. And even just his bumping, like he makes Daniels look like a monster here. Like there's a, a moment where Daniels just does a Christopher Daniels clothesline and Christopher Daniels clotheslines are, are fairly average looking. Uh, and Seidel takes like a flip bump that makes Daniels just look like a, a million bucks. And then later, you know, Daniels does another move he does all the time in SDO. And Seidel chooses to take it like uh, go fully vertical almost and lands on his shoulder and neck, which he might have done once before, but always like he's bumping for Daniels in a way that very few guys do. And yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed this. Yeah. I, I pretty much agree with you. I don't think it was my favorite match of the series. I do think it might've had the hottest crowd though. Um, I, I liked that they did do a callback for the finish because I, I was a little bit disappointed that they didn't do more references to the previous matches, considering they had three, you know, I would have liked to see more like takes on the different spots they had done previously. But, you know, I, I did like that, you know, D- you know, um, Daniels did feel a little bit more, I suppose, um, arrogant in the, uh, at the beginning. And, you know, at one point he was standing on Seidel's neck, getting the crowd to cheer. Um, there was, in the, in the early part of the match, there was this spot where both guys went for simultaneous arm drags. And I was surprised by, like, if I just imagined that spot without seeing it, I would be like, oh, that's, you know, that's not that interesting. But it actually looked like it was really painful. Like, when they both tried to, like, aggressively arm drag each other, it's like almost like they would rip their arms out of their sockets doing it. So I was like, that's they a good spot. They just fall to the mat in pain, like, immediately, yeah. like, oh, we just, like, tore, yeah, like you said, like, just, like, tore their arms out of their sockets. Yeah. Yeah, like that's a good spot. I, I'd be curious to see that more often. And I wonder if maybe they don't do that because it actually is dangerous. <laughs> you know, like you actually could tear your arm out of your socket. There was another spot where Seidel hit a leg lariat and Allison Danger yelled, Oh shit, Chris, he's back. Which I thought <laughs> Allison Danger also says something really funny after the match too, which I'll get to. But um yeah, I, I appreciated the the ending because uh, it did have that callback. And the only other thing that I would say I was a little disappointed with in this match is after Seidel did a tour of Dragon Gate, I was hoping he'd come back with some more like new cool stuff, but he didn't really seem all that different in this match. Like he was on point and he was really good, but like, it wasn't like, Oh, this is a new Matt Seidel with, you know, the Dragon Gate seasoning on him or anything like yeah. that. He did have it. I think new, uh, new tights and a new ring jacket. So I guess yeah, there, he- there is that. Um, the funny part after the match was, well, for one thing, I, I didn't really love that Daniels did like the Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania six thing where as soon as he got pinned, he just popped right back up and is all frustrated instead of like just selling it. Um, You don't really think of Daniels as a type of guy that's trying to big league somebody. And I, so I have to give him the benefit of the doubt that that's not what he was doing here, but it didn't really work that well for me. And then the other thing is as he, he was walking away all mad before he, uh, before he put over Seidel, um, Danger goes out to the uh, aisle with him, and, and she goes to him. That ref sucks, cock. I hate him. <laughs> Which is just a really <laughs> funny thing for her to say, I, like especially just adding the "I hate him" part to it. Um, I yeah. love when you hear Allison Danger ring to like talk because like it's very rarely like it's very unsubtle. Like like you were talking about like like it's always just like. 
oh, he's going to get you now. Like, like <laughs> hit him, Chris. Like, like it's just the most basic things. Like, I, but I actually appreciate because she's saying it so loudly and enthusiastically and yeah. like urgently. Well, it reminds like, there's me such conviction. It reminds like, me. I was in a little league when I was a kid, and like. It was a bad little league. Like we were not like this. Were all the kids that just like sucked, you know. And like so, because I, I wasn't good. And um, you know, some of the dads would try to you know every once in a while, like the the dorky dads or the dorky kids would try to be the, like the manager of the team. And um, so they they did, they weren't like they didn't have any skill at doing that. So I just remember there was one year where the dad who was in charge. Um, whenever somebody was pitching, and I think usually he put his son as the pitcher, he would just, he would stop the game, just, just like to go out and quote, talk to the pitcher, but he would usually just go out and be like, let's go. <laughs> and he was just like, <laughs> like just unsettle stuff, like, come on, get him. Like, you know, like stuff like that. Just, that's what Throw it reminded me out. of when you said unsubtle, uh, strategy <laughs> from the sidelines. So one thing before we get to, I'll describe what happened after the match just to fill in any gaps. Not although you did a good job, but like um, one thing I want to mention. Last thing in the match, and again, this is a dumb thing that probably no one will like except me because it's a very minor thing. But there's a moment in the match where a fan starts a fallen angel chant, and normally you get chants like that, like when a wrestler is like in trouble or something. This is uh, Christopher Daniels is holding a chin lock on Matt Seidel, and the fans like, you know, who needs a boost right now? Christopher Daniels, like when he's applplying a chin lock. And I, for some reason, I got a, a, a real kick out of that. But uh, well, well, yeah, as Nigel McGuinness said, those fans are just nice people. <laughs> Um, nice, very hot, sweaty people. But uh, so yeah, as Matt mentioned, Daniels immediately pops up uh, up after the pinfall, and so yeah, I would imagine maybe that his intention was I'm selling my anger. But like Matt said, I I had the same thought as you did, Matt, which was that kind of comes off as weird because in Ring of Honor, like very rarely do you ever see anyone not like really sell a loss. So the idea of seeing like that Hogan esque immediate stands up, not the worst for wear. Yeah, I noticed that too. But anyway, he has a Daniels has a bit of a temper tantrum. He kicks the ropes in frustration. He briefly yells at the ref, like you know the usual. That wasn't three. Blah blah blah. Crowd chants for Seidel and Daniels initially leaves without giving a handshake, which is you know interesting because he had just started the gimmick of oh I'm going to start shaking everyone's hands, and that actually draws some boos from the crowd. Even though Daniels is typically a huge fan favorite at this point, in Ring of but, Honor. But this this is his official first handshake that he's given after he loses to somebody, which is noteworthy right i i didn't realize that that, that, that is very interesting that was a, that's good to point out I, I, yeah huh you're right i i think you're right i'm matt my memory is terrible but i'm yeah, I, to I guess it is possible that i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure i'm right so uh allison danger on the floor apart from talking about how the ref likes to do certain sexual acts he tries to talk some sense to daniels as the crowd chants shake his hand um Daniels eventually does get back in the ring. He grabs the mic and he says, there's only one reason Matt Seidel beat me tonight. He gives you that pause because you think, oh, shit, he's going to come up with an excuse. And he goes, and that's because he was the better man. He goes, if, if I'm going to be gracious in victory, I damn well, sure will, well, better be gracious in defeat. He uh, tells Seidel he's earned this, and then he shakes Seidel's hand. The crowd chants Ring of Honor, or ROH. Um, Daniels has one more thing to say. He mentions that he knows Seidel and AJ Styles put together one hell of a tag team in ROH, and he knows AJ has been a part of ROH in the last couple of months, which I should note, Dan, uh, AJ Styles literally wrestled on the very last show before this one, so um, he wrestled Davey Richards. But anyway, um, so Daniel says, if you know, Matt, if you ever want a tag team partner, I'm your man. So 
we uh unlike the last time Daniels did something like this where he got on the mic and was like, you know, hey, if you need help with the CZW war and no one took his offer, this, this, this <laughs> offer will be taken quickly. Yeah, no, you know, so. y- you know, Chris, we're we're good. I think we just we just need a steal. That's what they said. <laughs> Next, we get another backstage clip of BJ Whitmer as the very feedbacky guitar riff continues to play. Uh, BJ is rocking back and forth as he sits down. He's breathing heavy, so uh, possibly having a panic attack. I don't know. I've been there, BJ. Just stay strong. Um, next panic, we atta- have panic go- attack or, gl- or gallbladder attack. Either way, Trevor's been there. <laughs> Deep Trevor name lore. That man is picking up. Um so next we have a dark uh, tag team match that did not air, which is another interesting one, Matt, because I feel like the Irish Airborne have a couple of these lately where there was – look, there appeared to be time on the DVD and they did not put it on because I think this DVD ends like 15 or 17 minutes before three hours. Like it did not go to the three-hour mark like some do, and yet this did not air. This was the Irish Airborne of Dave and Jay Chris defeating uh, Ring of Honor students. Alex Payne and Pele Primo. The only possible reason why maybe this didn't air comes from a Chris Johnson PW Torch Live report, which he, where he writes, the Irish Airborne beat Alex Payne and Pele Primo. This was nothing more than a squash in favor of Irish Airborne. At one point, Pele took a really bad fall and hit the back of his head on the ring apron and the floor. So maybe they didn't want to show that. But otherwise, I feel like there's been a couple Irish Airborne matches lately that they've, they're kind of getting pushed, but kind of also not getting pushed, it feels like. There's but, clearly some element of, oh, we're not always so happy with their performances going on um, in uh, in ROH land. Yeah. And obviously, we just covered recently that Briscoe's tag, which was not terrible, but not what you'd hope for as like a potential, you know, make their name kind of level match. But... We move on to a non-title four-corner survival match. Non-title because there's two champions in this match. Tag champion Austin Aries defeats world champion Brian Danielson as well as Delirious and Homicide in 18 minutes, 19 seconds when he pinned Danielson after he hit a 450 splash. Matt, before I give it to you, we should, I guess, establish what the rules of this match are because they're kind of simple but kind of confusing. And I kind of appreciate what Gabe was trying to do, but I... Don't think it quite works. So you're like, I kind of appreciate it, but I don't appreciate it. (laughs) I mean, in theory, it sounds so. Okay, here's the part I appreciate. I've seen, you know, I'm a little harder on these four ways than you. So many of them, they feel meaningless. I appreciate that he tried to give this match actual stakes. So the step was Aries, you know, is the tag champ. Danielson's the world champ. If either of them get the fall, these four ways are always, obviously, uh, always one fall to a finish generally. So always in general, they're usually one fall to the finish. Um, if either champion gets a fall, scores the fall on anyone else in the match, that person can't challenge them for their title for the rest of that person's reign. So like, let's say Danielson pins Delirious. Delirious can't challenge for Danielson's world title for the rest, as long as he holds the title for the rest of this run. On the other hand, if Delirious or, or, or if anyone, um, if Delirious or Homicide pin one of the champions, they get a future title shot against that champion. Or I guess if that matter, if one of the champions pins the other champion, they get a future title shot against that because that's obviously uh, Ares will get a future world title shot against Danielson for this. So in theory, I like it's almost on the verge of being too complicated. But here's the problem, Matt. I don't know. Maybe I missed this on commentary, but I never hear the commentary address the following things, which is 
What happens if homicide? You you talked about this earlier. What happens if homicide pins Danielson since he's already old a world title shot? Does he get two world title shots? What happens if Danielson pins homicide? Like, does that overrule the fact that Cornet already agreed to give him a world title shot, or does that supersede it? And also, what happens if Delirious beats homicide or homicide beats Delirious? Do they just get nothing? Like, there's so many weird little. It's too complicated, but it's not thorough enough at the same time. So, well, clearly, if homicide beats Delirious or Delirious beats homicide, they're gonna you know get that championship committee to maybe put them in the contender circle <laughs> but it's just it's one of those things where it, it, it it's just i i appreciate the the intention behind it but the execution is very confusing but i think probably what, think? what it comes down to is that none of that other stuff matters because eric is going to pin danielson and that's all there is to it <laughs> <laughs> the classic ROH thing from the same Ring of Honor logic of DQs only matter like once in six months when we decide we need a DQ. So, um, yep. Matt, what do you think about this as a match? It's pretty star-studded four-way. Yeah, I um, I thought it was good as these things go. Like it was, I would say, fun, which is usually what the best you can expect from these matches. It wasn't very intense for the vast majority. Then they just pack a ton of huge spots into the last two minutes. Like, it was just like, wow, they just like flipped a switch. It was one of those matches where it's like, they're sort of like having a B show match and then they turn it into like an A show effort just for like an incredibly condensed amount of time. So like, I would say very entertaining, but not a lot of like weight to it or, or gravitas, I guess would be another word to say. Um, it, it was funny because it was homicide. You know, we were talking about how we would expect him to be really pissed off because of what happened on the very last show in terms of uh, what with with Cornette. But instead, at the beginning, he just seems like surly. You know, like he's like like at one point a fan says something to him, and then homicide just yells at the fan, tells him he has a little dick, and that his wife has AIDS. He's just like running through stock insults, and then he also gets mad at, that everyone else is shaking hands, and he's then he's. Um, he's like, I'm not going to go anywhere near delirious. Like he just seems like in a mood, but not in a rage, which I don't know. I guess it's something at least, um, you know, Danielson is pretty funny here because you, you never notice how like there's two Danielsons, like even as a heel version of Danielson, there's the one that's like the very confident ace type heel. And then there's the B-show Danielson who like just really plays up the comedic aspects of his character more. And I feel like that's what we were getting here. Like he plays like super terrified of both Homicide, which makes some sense, and Delirious. Like he's he's afraid of getting in the ring with either of them. And so we get a lot of Delirious versus Homicide and you know that then then homicide gets scared and tags out because delirious is just like rambling so much at him and aries is like the only guy that doesn't seem scared of delirious so <laughs> aries and delirious have a match and delirious keeps confounding everyone he he gets whipped into the corner slides out of the ring runs around knocks danielson off the apron then runs back into the ring clotheslines danielson so this this part of the match again it's fun it doesn't feel like a major match with major stars but it's fun um because they're all really good so they're you know they 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 execute it all well but there's a lot of stalling and like silliness for the first like five or six minutes of the match um you know, eventually we finally get like the real serious stuff where it's Aries versus Homicide, but then Danielson tags in against Aries and he's quite aggressive, so he's not chickening out anymore. And we get Aries and Danielson, which obviously is a good combination. 
And it just goes back and forth like this. There's, um, you know, there's, there's a spot on the floor where Homicide stalks Danielson and Danielson backs into Ares who chops him and then Ares and Homicide double team Danielson and Delirious comes off the top rope with a, with a flip dive. And then actually back in the ring, Danielson gets the airplane spin on Delirious. I like that we've noticed that like Danielson has brought back the airplane spin after it has been absent for a while. One thing that, you know, I think both of us really like about Danielson is that he works stuff in and out. He's always like, what can I do that's different? And bringing back the airplane spin for a little while, you know, it's different because he hadn't been doing it for the first half of his title reign, really. Um, Watching Brian Danielson in this era is like, uh, like following like a band you really like. We're like, oh, he, they added that song back to the set list. Like, it's like, oh, did you, you should have been there, man. Danielson brought off, you know, the airplane spin. You know, he hasn't done that in years, man. Like, it's just, it's just weird, but it's neat in a really cool way. Yeah. So then we get into this, um, this final, like very few minutes of this heavier action. Danielson misses the flying headbutt on Delirious. Then Homicide misses the diving headbutt on Danielson. Then Ares misses a frog splash on Homicide. Then Delirious hits the shadows over hell on Ares, but he kicks out. And then Delirious hits the clotheslines in the corner on Ares. Ares blocks the bulldog. Um, he comes back with the, with the shinbreaker suplex combination. He goes for a superplex on Delirious, but Homicide knocks Ares to the floor and hits the super ace crusher on Delirious and goes for a lariat, but Danielson catches his arm, but Homicide ends up hitting Danielson with the lariat anyway. And then Homicide goes for the cop killer. Ares breaks that up, throws Homicide outside, lariats Danielson, and immediately hits the tope on Homicide. And then we get Danielson versus Delirious for a little bit. Um, Danielson does the elbows, but Delirious escapes, goes for his own elbows, punt to the head, then another one. Then he gets the Cobra stretch on Danielson, and at this point, the crowd definitely is excited. They're tap, they're chanting tap for uh, Danielson, but he gets his foot on the bottom rope. Um, eventually, Danielson does this cool thing where he does this like reverse headlock takeover into the cattle mutilation on Delirious, but Ares blind tags Delirious's leg unbeknownst to Danielson and hits the 450 while Danielson is bridging in the cattle mutilation and that's gets the pin that final few minutes as they often are it was super exciting but you know the rest of the match was them having fun again in a quality way because they're all really good but it's just it was it was them having fun in a four-way and then doing a lot of big moves at the end and that's basically what it was it was enjoyable but Nothing, nothing particularly memorable or substantive. Yeah, for me, I can kind of split this match into thirds. Like the first third, I would say, is like a testament to the power of the having an over wacky gimmick in wrestling. Because I think one of the observer notes was like people, a bunch of people had written, written into Dave and said like Delirious was the star of this match. And in a lot of ways, especially in the first third, he is the star of this match, which is, again, the power of like an over comedy gimmick where he's in the ring with three of the biggest stars in the promotion. He's a mid carder. And he's kind of stealing the show because everyone's reacting to him. And the reason why is because Delirious is really a really fun gimmick to react to. I was thinking, well, why is that? And I think why that is is because his character makes you have to do a reaction that wrestlers very rarely do. I guess unless you're Austin Aries, which is, um, which is, you know, a lot of times in wrestling you either get like react out of two ways, right? You're angry at somebody 
or you're scared of them. People like when they react to delirious, it's always like you said a word for it earlier, like confusion or something like that. Like they're, they're always befuddled and almost intimidated, but not scared. Like the, the reaction I realized was there's that gift people use a lot, which is a tongue Dalon from blink 182, the first date music video where he's going what the fuck like just in a really exaggerated way and i think feel like delirious like when you face delirious in this era it's your chance to basically make that gif yourself everyone gets to do their own flavor of that because like homicide is great here just being like you're seeing the most intimidating grittiest character in the promotion and he's just completely like does not know what to do with delirious like he's not he's just like what the fuck is this guy doing i don't know what to how to handle this and um the middle third of this match, unfortunately, is, I think, a good example of one of the reasons I really don't like four ways often in Ring of Honor, which is it's really talented wrestlers doing a minute or two of mid-tier time-filling wrestling and then tagging out. The cycle repeats. Nothing really builds. No one really gets in a groove because everyone's just swapping out every minute or two. It's not fast and exciting enough to be a spot fest, and it's also not really telling a story. And you know, four ways can tell be exciting spot fest. They can tell, you know, intricate stories, you know, like the, the crying of champions for which we really liked, but back in the first year of ring of honor, but a lot of the times they don't, they're more like this match. But then, like you mentioned, the last third, they do the thing. I always talk about a lot of times in these matches, they flick the switch. And the last third is just them after, like you were saying, kind of doing a B show, just having fun, just, not high stakes level stuff. They just start doing a, a barrage of signature moves and working pretty hard. And it's nothing that's really imaginative or reinventing the wheel, but it's fun enough. And overall, I'd say this is good because the first third was kind of fun comedy. The final third's exciting enough. Um, maybe we would have had someone steal the win from homicide to kind of continue the homicide always gets screwed thing. But instead, um, Danielson kind of gets the wins um, stolen from him. I don't really know if he necessarily needed that, but um, it's, you know, a, a standard Danielson finish. We've seen that before where he has some of the cattle mutilation. Someone comes off the top to break it up and pin him. Um, it, it's, it, it's the classic. Eh, it kind of got good by the end four way. Um, I did like Delirious also grabbing a fan's hat and throwing it in the ring at Danielson. Um, and that's that. So we get to the semi-main event. This is one of the two, in my opinion. If I was like buying this DVD at the time, we're going to buy a ticket. If there was, the, I would say this match, this show had two major selling points. This would be the first one: the Briscoes of Jay and Mark Briscoe defeated Jack Evans and Roderick Strong in twelve thirty-seven when Jay pinned uh, Roderick after they hit a spike Jay driller on him. Jack Evans is also announced as making his return from Dragon Gate. He's wearing a Dragon Gate T-shirt. Um, and yeah, this was a bigger deal for him than all of these other guys that were coming back from Dragon Gate because uh, Jack Evans had been on, I believe, like a three-month continuous tour. So we haven't seen him in, in a whole season. Um, Matt, this match, um, it's a rematch from their match at best in, in the world. And I, I think we both thought that match was great, like one of the better Ring of Honor tags up to that point in the company's history. I would say this is a definite step down. It's shorter. It gets off to a hot start where um, Roddy, Roddy and Jack, um, you know, in the Briscoes brawl before like the ring entrances even get done. But it quickly ends up, I would say, being kind of a lesser version of the first match. It's move to move. It's a fun match, and it follows the common Jack and Roddy tag structure of Jack kind of pops off on the offense to start. Then he plays the pace and face and Farrell for a long time. Then Roddy gets a good hot tag. Then we get a back and forth final few minutes, and all of that's fun. And Jack 
he's kind of continuing the transformation he started before he went to Dragon Gate. You know, he's got ring gear now. He's doing more kick variations, and that's fun, you know. And Roddy's hot tag is always fun, and Jack taking a big beating is always fun. It's just a everything's less fun than it was in their first match. It's it, it, it's a it's a B show version of a great A show match, and um, it's not quite as big. It's not quite as imaginative. It's not quite as over the top. As a result, I kind of notice the cracks a little more. You know, you start to notice more that they're just kind of doing stuff when it's not quite as fast. Um, there's also slight bits of awkwardness I felt in this match that I can't quite describe, but everything just isn't flowing quite as smoothly as maybe their last matches you'd want it to. It's all still exciting enough that I would say it's a very low, very good, still would be up, up to this point that I show them my favorite match on the card. I like that what takes Jack out of the match is uh, he crash and burns on an ode to the Bulldogs, which is the move they beat the Briscoes with the last time they wrestled. And I like the story of the Briscoes actually beat Roddy and not Jack, which naturally gives them another reason to earn a third match for the title against Roddy and, and Aries, which is like, hey, we actually beat one of the champions here in a tag match. Um, enjoyable, but a little bit disappointing to me. Yeah, I... um. I mostly agree with you. I actually wouldn't have this as my favorite match on the card so far. I um I thought this was this has been a solid show, you know, like there's nothing great on the undercard, but I I like just about everything. You know, the only match I had really found disappointing was the Cabana versus McGinnis match. But everything else was was good. This was the next match that I found kind of disappointing. And I think it was it was more formulaic than the first match, and I found it very surprising that it got less time than the other tag team match on the show. You know, you'd think yeah. if you have Rave and Renaro versus Richards and Clark or uh, Evans and Strong against the Briscoes, which one would you give more time to? You would think it would be this one. But this is the semi main event of the show. Yeah, so, but yeah. It, it only, yeah, but it didn't. It, it was pretty short. And like, yeah. I guess maybe the idea was okay, we're just going to be really fast paced. But I don't think it was that fast paced to where no. it would justify, you know, cutting a lot of time. You know, there, there were little things that I, you know, that I think took it down. Like, I thought when like Strong finally got his hot tag, you know, he, he's really good at these hot tags, but he gets cut off almost immediately. Like, you know, Mar- uh, Mark hits him with like a head and arm suplex, and it's like, Okay, give Strong a better hot tag, and I think the match becomes better. You know, like little things like that. Uh, I, the other thing that I um, was surprised by: this match had one of the one of the lesser crowd reactions of the night. You know, I thought this was a very good crowd overall, but this match I think might have had the quietest crowd of any of the matches. And you know, I mean, I guess what that's a function of is that the crowd is tired because this is yeah. one of those shows where they save the intermission until right before the last match. Cause they have to set up uh, a gimmick in the ring. Mm-hmm. But I, I, that's the only explanation I could think of for why the crowd wasn't hotter. Cause this was a very hot crowd and they were not dead for this match, but they were not very hot either. So yeah, I mean that first match, people still talk about it to some extent, to the, to the extent that people talk about undercard ROH matches now. That's one they talk about, and this one really was forgotten pretty quickly, and I think it's easy to see why, compared in comparing the two to each other. That one was just better. I mean, you know, this was yeah. a good match, but forgettable. And this is a match where I'm probably, my review is probably saying a little bit harder than my rating, because it's just disappointing because 
one, the first match these teams had in Ring of Honor was really was great. And two, you know, I, I'm a, a big fan of both these teams. I mean, the Briscoes, in our opinion, is one of the best tag teams of all time. And Jack and Roddy are like one of my favorite kind of not unsung, but they didn't quite get the mainstream yeah. big glow run of, you'd want. They're one of the great super short lived tag teams. Yeah. Yeah. So every time they're, they, they are in the ring together, my, my ceiling for what they're capable of together is super high. And this does not, while being good is, is not close to, I think, what their ceiling is. But um, next we go to a pre-tape Samoa Joe promo that one Gabe promised earlier. Joe is somewhere, I guess it's some kind of training school, whether it be for martial arts or wrestling. It doesn't appear to be the Ring of Honor wrestling school. Um, he he says, yes, Brian Danielson. He goes, how are you doing, Brian? He goes, he calls him champion. And then he kind of chuckles at that. Joe says, we're in a, I'm in a place right now that you and me or Brian are very familiar with. He goes, that there's a bunch of mats a filthy room and a bunch of attitudes it's a place where pro wrestlers come to get better to get meaner to train to win championships i was very you know, surprised well, where he never just named the place like it's i thought that yeah. was, i was waiting like, for him to do it and he just never did yeah i was thinking like is this the new japan la dojo because they both used to train there so i i, I was just wondering but well he goes well brian has been called you've been calling yourself the greatest i've been rehabbing my knee i've been making myself stronger here it, joe takes issue with their upcoming match being labeled the fight of the century because joe says it will the it, in fact it'll be the beating of the century the massacre of the century it, it'll be the crowning achievement of what joe sets out to do but it won't be a fight because it won't be competitive he says he's going to take back what's his the ring of honor world championship it's it, this is a good standard short joe promo um i've i've seen a little bit better from joe but still good you know joe's the, a pretty good master of like the short and sweet promo here to get across his points and i do like the end where he's like you know you're labeling it the fight of the century it's not going to be a fight like i'm going to just destroy this guy yeah I, I agree with you it was a good promo but i definitely i've heard better from joe and next, we get another shot of BJ Whitmer, this time in his wrestling gear, walking back and forth in the parking lot as the same rock guitar riff plays. And wrestlers, like, in their wrestling gear in, like, outdoors will never not be ridiculous and kind of funny to me. And it completely – I realize this point of the segment is to get us more hyped up about the, the seriousness and of this match. But just seeing BJ Whitmer in his trunks, like, in a parking lot outside, I, like, I just – I, I'm sorry, I can't take this seriously. Well, you but, know, so um, on the on the first War of the Wire when it had um, Homicide and Carino, they would show both of them preparing, and a lot of it would be like Homicide backstage with his his son and Guillotine Legrand, and they were all like like anxious and stuff. It would have been funny to contrast BJ's uh, preparation with like Necro Butcher because you could just imagine Necro Butcher like this is no big deal to him at all. Like he's just like chilling, like you know, like eating hot yeah, dogs like, or something like that. Yeah, he's like, he's smoking weed and watching like reruns of Good Times or something, like yeah, just relaxing. Yeah, that, that would have been that. Would, I mean, obviously that would not be great for the tone, but it would be amusing to me. Yeah, I would have. That, that would, I mean, yeah, it would have completely ruined the, the mood. But two guys doing a podcast. Decades after the fact, would have would have enjoyed it. But yes. next, we go backstage as it's intermission. Dave Prezak is joined by the embassy of Jimmy Rave, Daisy Hayes, and Sal Renaro. Prezak says it appears that Davy Richards has Jimmy Rave's number, and Rave angry says that's not true. He shoves Sal Renaro by like the sides of his head into the wall, which looked not fun. Um, Sal apologizes profusely, while Daisy says I I could take care of Davy. You know I, I could have taken care of him. Rave cuts a very quick angry promo saying that Davy Richards' ring of our career is going to be very short lived. He calls him a fluke. Prezak's about to ch- throw to a video package when he's told off camera we have to go to the ring, go to the ring instead, and we do. 
to find Claudio Castagnoli and Nate Webb walking through the crowd at the ringside. Uh, the house lights are on because this is during intermission. They had just finished setting up the uh, the barbed wire for the main event. Uh, the ring's all set up for it. Claudio grabs a mic, and the crowd almost immediately chants, shut the fuck up at Claudio. Claudio says, you all thought you got rid of me, but guess what? You were wrong. Claudio says his Swiss intelligence was too high for that, as he has an ROH contract, which means he will appear wherever he wants and do whatever he wants. Claudio starts speaking in a foreign language, I assume Swiss, and to prove how smart he is, and he trolls the crowd. Ace and Colt Cabana then appear. Claudio goes running, but Ace starts hitting Nate Webb with the cowbell. Uh, Colt and Claudio brawl at ringside. This goes on for a bit. Uh, Colt rams Claudio's head multiple times to a chair held by a fan at ringside. Ace throws Webb over the barricade onto some chairs, which in a moment that really sums up Nate Webb's entire Ring of uh, Honor run is him taking a brutal bump and not getting what he deserves from it because the camera basically misses it. it it's not in the crowd to see him land on it. Um, the brawl continues for... Um, as Necro Butcher soon makes his way to the ring with no ring music, nothing. And um, he's double fisting chairs. He's got one in each hand. Necro enters the ring as the others continue to brawl ringside until a bunch of Ring of Honor wrestling school students and the refs break up the ringside brawl. BJ Whitmer then enters, just like Necro, to no fanfare or music. The ref sings, ring the bell, and we get a very abrupt start to our main event. But first, Matt, we just talked about a couple segments here. Um did you have any thoughts, especially, uh, you know, I appreciate, again, this is Ring of Honor dotting the I's and crossing the T's of basically saying, you know, why is Claudio still going to wrestle on Ring of Honor when CCW just lost the feud? And it, while it's always funny to think of the idea that Ring of Honor had contracts in 2006, I do appreciate the, uh, the idea of Claudio coming and basically saying, like, look, I'm still going to be here no matter what. I've got a deal. You can't get rid of me. Yeah, that part's good, although that doesn't explain why Nate Webb was there. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I, I thought that this whole brawl felt gratuitous to me. I was like, all right, I- I'm done with this stuff. <laughs> you know, this like Claudio comes out and then they run into the crowd and they fight in the crowd and someone holds a chair. And it's just like, all right, we saw cage of death. Let's move on. Like it just felt like a rehash. So I wasn't, I honestly didn't like that part very much. It felt like a way to get Nate Webb and a steal a payday. And then to like have a, a kind of ECW ish. Like it just transitions to the, main event but neither guy gets entrances which is funny because it's a very low-key way to start the match with like no entrances and the and the, this brawl's been kind of taking the focus away until the ref is like all right let's start the match but then it has like one of ray var's most ridiculous like graphics where it's like you know got like a bloody barbed wire graphic saying this is a no ropes barbed wire match and then it makes that explosion sound <laughs> and the graphic explodes it's like it's like the most low-key ring of honor thing right juxtaposed post with like the most over the top thing and that move over us. move over robot arm hello robot <laughs> barbed wire explosion that brings us to the no main event the no ropes barbed wire match um bj whitmer defeats necro butcher via pinfall in sit 26 minutes 10 seconds after he had an exploder so matt before i throw it to you Second barbed wire match in Ring of Honor history. The only other one was Homicide versus uh, Steve Carino way back in 2003, I believe. Um, for those who haven't seen these matches, this is uh, no ropes barbed wire, which means they've taken down all the ring ropes. They've ra- they've put barbed wire on where the ropes would be. There are two barbed wire boards leaning up against turnbuckles. There's, I think, another barbed wire board at ringside. Well, eventually, a ladder will come into play. There's chairs. So tons of plunder. And we get what we get. Matt, what would you think about this match? Well, it's impossible if you've watched 
you know, both ROH Wars of the Wire to uh, not compare this to Homicide versus Carino, which is a much more legendary feud and match. And, um, I mean, I guess it's not more legendary than ROH versus CZW, but I think it is more legendary than BJ Whitmer versus Necro Butcher. And, um, you know, it's interesting because, like, in a lot of ways, this match was much more exciting than that one. It had a much hotter crowd. That match, that show, we talked a lot. If you ever go back and listen to the episode we did, that had one of the quietest crowds we had ever seen in ROH up until that point. Like, it was stunning how quiet that crowd was. And in some ways, that made the first War of the Wire match kind of a strange atmosphere. But we, I think, both agreed it lent this air of, like, intensity and gravitas to the match. Like, people were in, like, a hushed, uh, you know, kind of awe watching that match. And it made everything feel important and intense. Like, in you know, weird... It's very weird for, like, a quiet crowd to work in a match's favor, but it kind of did, because then when the crowd did pop, it was like... Holy moly. I remember like one of the biggest pops in that match was like for like a monkey flip <laughs> into something like some sort of barbed wire or something, you know, and it's just like moments like that made it stand out. So that match was part of a more personal, intense feud. And I think it told more of a serious story and it felt more serious. So it was probably better in that way. This match was like, the barbed wire match version of a spot fest. Like it had a really hot crowd and it was the whole, had the hometown hero of BJ Whitmer. It had homicide at ringside in BJ's corner, which I don't know, didn't really totally seem to fit homicide's character. Like it seems like at this point, homicide would be more mad at like, let's say Jim Cornette than he would be at Necro Butcher. But I mean, I guess it was just done for the match to add a little bit of star power and like, have net, have BJ feel like he wasn't, you know, at a disadvantage. And in that sense, it helped, but I don't think it was think, a nice callback to the first yeah, barbed wire match that right. BJ in his corner, a guy who, who granted he lost the first one of those. They yeah. don't mention that, but, but he, but he has, um, he has experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, it was just, Oh my goodness. What kind of shit are these guys going to do to each other? And it's just, they do a lot of shit to each other. And I guess I could, <laughs> I could just run down a lot of it. Um, but, um, I will just say this to start. Um, this match is 17 years old, so sometimes wrestling raises the stakes a lot over the years in terms of what's accepted, what's expected, what people will react to. And I will just say that if this match happened now, people would, you know, let's say like on an, on an AEW pay-per-view, people would be talking about it. People would say that was fucking crazy. It wouldn't have to be any different than it was for people to say that was a fucking insane match to have. I'm sure if you watched a lot of like CZW and death matches, this doesn't feel that crazy, but it does to me watching it uh, now. So I I can only imagine how it felt then. I mean, I guess I don't have to imagine because I watched it then, but I I can only think about it because it seems crazy now. Like they, I'll, I'll go through a lot of the big spots. Um, you know, obviously early on there's like teasing of going into the barbed wire, but you know, once, um, you know, once they get started, you know, there's a, a spot where, 
Necro does a, a, a chair-assisted body slam, which is one of his signature spots. He wraps a chair around Whitmer's head and neck and then hits another chair into it, which, honestly, of all the spots in this match, that's the one that I hated to see the most because that's like brain-scrambling shit. Um, so BJ blades um, his head. Pretty good blade job. Then Necro scrapes the bloody head into the barbed wire to the point where it's like, Right near his eye, which the announcers point out, and it really was right near his eye. And it's just like, could you imagine, like, what would have happened if he just like put his eye into it? Like, it seems like, like it could have easily happened, right? Yeah, and and I mean, this should be obvious now. This is real barbed wire. Like when you see guys, oh, yeah. this, oh, yeah. this is no softened tips or anything. Like when you see guys get like pushed into the barbed wire, seconds when they pull away, you can see like the little pinprick blood. Cuts starting to bleed already. Like it's, oh yeah, it's know, very it, gruesome. It's match. it's barbed wire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the very next word I wrote in my notes was gruesome because Necro <laughs> put BJ in barbed wire and then picks his legs up so all his weight is coming down onto it. Um, he um, yeah, uh, Whitmer hits a roaring forearm into a chair into Necro. Um, and then Necro rams the edge. Of, then he rams the edge of the chair into Necro's head. To uh, which now, which now Necro starts bleeding. I almost wondered if it was hard way, but the way it was gushing out, it was like okay, it had to be just like a, a really good blade job. Necro was bleeding a ton, like instantly as soon as he blades. Um, and now we start getting whips into the wire. Um, he uh, Whitmer repeatedly drops Necro in different positions across the barbed wire. And then Necro sets up another barbed wire table besides the two in the ring. He sets up one outside the ring. Um, at that point, Whitmer just hits a regular old pile driver. How quaint for a two count. <laughs> um, and then they, they do a spot where Whitmer tries to powerbomb Necro over the top. You know, I wrote the top wire because there's no top rope. Um, <laughs> the top wire through the, the table. Strand. But Necro escapes that. He tries it again. Necro escapes again, hits a big clothesline. And then he finds a pair of wire cutters and they just do a whole s- segment where Necro is trying to stab Whitmer in the head with the edge of the wire cutters, and Whitmer has to fight that off. And this all builds up to Whitmer retrieving the wire cutters and cutting the top strand of bar, actually cutting an entire side of the ring of barbed wire. So there's basically just like an exposed side of the ring with nothing between the uh, the turnbuckles, and so it's just completely exposed. And they 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 fight over doing some moves on the. Ex- uh, exposed side, and then Necro hits a low blow, and just all of a sudden does a power bomb where he steps to the side, and since there's no rope or bar- barbed wire, they just fall off the apron through the barbed wire table, which is it was so insane because it was just very sudden and like felt out of nowhere, even though they had been teasing it. And of course, as you do in these matches, they have to use wire cutters now to cut BJ out of the barbed wire, especially his hair. Takes a while. And while they're cutting BJ free, uh, Necro goes to get more chairs. And then they get back in the ring. Um, BJ fights off Necro's shoulders, hits a brain buster on an open chair, uh, and gets a two count. That gets a surprisingly big pop because you'd think the audience would know, like, okay, the match is not going to end when there are two barbed wire boards, both set up in the ring, neither of which have been touched. Um, and then you hear Homicide yell, I got a surprise for you, and it gives him a sack. Which, um, no, not broken glass. It is thumbtacks. Um, Necro, um, quickly does a double underhook powerbomb onto the tax on Whitmer. 
Then Necro uses his hand to spread out the tacks even more. Sidewalk slams Whitmer onto them. Uh, Necro goes to attack again, but BJ throws a bunch of thumbtacks into his face, then drops him feet first on the thumbtacks, then exploders him onto the tacks, gets a two count. That was a hell of a sequence right there. Um, uh, Whitmer goes to send Necro into the barbed wire table in the corner, but Necro blocks it and hits what is basically a Death Valley driver through the barbed wire table that's set up at the corner. Then he throws more chairs into the ring, and while that's going on, Whitmer once again has to be cut out of the barbed wire. Um, Necro tries to put an even bigger barbed wire, because the other barbed wire board's even bigger. He puts that onto, he tries to put that onto two chairs, but Whitmer kicks the board into Necro's face and then drops it onto Necro's chest, basically like barbed wire side down. And then he beats the board onto Necro with a chair. And then Homicide pulls out two ladders. Fortunately, they only use one of them. Um, but we do get a Please Don't Die chant, which I think is the first one we've heard of that in a while. And I'm thinking the same thing, even though this match was 17 years ago. Um, so Whitmer climbs up so high that he's basically touching the ceiling. Or he literally is touching the ceiling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he dives off with a splash onto the board on top of Necro. And Necro kicks out, and even I'm surprised at that one. Necro fights off an exploder, but BJ gets one suddenly at a very high angle, gets the win. Yeah, it's honestly, it's surprising how this match is not really talked about that much because it really was an incredible spectacle. Like, again, like not the same level of intensity and seriousness of Homicide and Carino, much more of a spot fest, much less of a story. The story mainly being it's a culmination that BJ Whitmer takes a lot of punishment and keeps coming back and doesn't give up. And he, slays the dragon in front of his of his uh hometown crowd while continuing to sacrifice his body. But yeah, if I saw this match happen today, I'd be like that match is insane. They do a lot of insane stuff and both these guys are insane and that's my general feeling. Um I don't even know what star rating I'd give it, but I think I'd give it over 4 stars. I mean, I it's really really exciting and memorable. And yeah, that's my that's my thoughts. <laughs> So I, I thought this this easily qualifies as one of the most violent matches of Ring of Honor history, one of the most hardcore, whatever you want to say. I think it might be the goriest match in Ring of Honor history. I hope um, so. I hope so. Like I hope <laughs> we don't see stuff that's gorier. I mean, apart from just like the Samoa Joe Jay Briscoe cage match where like the blood coagulation is disgusting. I mean, just in terms of if you want to see, you know, plenty of super close up camera shots of barbed wire digging into people's bare backs, like this is the match for you folks. Um, but th- this is in some ways like the grimiest a ring of honor, hardcore matches ever felt. So a flaw in a lot of hardcore m- matches where it's a hardcore wrestler versus a more, a wrestler more known for like regular matches generally is that from the start, you know, the hardcore wrestler is going to take most or all of the biggest bumps. And if the regular wrestler is about to be teased to go into some horrible gimmick, it's going to be a reversed. I almost want to call this the McFoley problem, which granted a few wrestlers like Randy Orton have swerved us on the McFoley problem, but there's been a lot of McFoley matches where, you know, you, you know, if a big bumps being teased and it's not fully, it's going to be flipped around. You know, the undertaker didn't also get thrown off the cage. <laughs> yeah. Triple H was not going to, you know, go through the ceiling of the cell in the, in the hell in the cell match. But, um, um, the the Mick Foley problem does not exist here because BJ Whitmer takes as much, if not more, 
of the brutal spots in this match than the Necro Butcher. In fact, a lot of times, even when they both take a spot, it's BJ taking the spot first. BJ's the first guy in this match to go into the barbed wire, not Necro. You know, when the thumbtacks come out, you know, yeah, Necro maybe takes the worst spots, but BJ's the first guy to go into the thumbtacks. And again, he's not dressed up with like a bunch of t-shirts for like a hardcore match. He's just in his tights, his trunks, you know. Um, when the barbed wire boards come out, he's the one taking the bump through the table on the floor, although in, a sp- in the one spot I thought was stupid, I do think it was really dumb that when, when Necro power bombs BJ off the apron through the barbed wire table, he does like a sit out bar power bomb, which means he's also taking the barbed wire willingly. But I mean, that's Necro Butcher. Yeah, I mean that but, that, you know, that fits Necro Butcher's character. You can't deny yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, same with the barbed wire boards. You know, BJ's going through them first, and um, everything he's doing first, he's doing just as much as Necro, if not more. And the match is also again long, which when you consider. It, it, it's 26 minutes in that kind of heat, and you mentioned all show how hot this crowd is. I'm impressed that this crowd, after seeing an entire show, was as hot as they were for this match with this much heat going this long. Um, you know, plenty of teaser with the barbed wire. One thing I also thought some of the most gruesome stuff was not bloody. It was those two different spots where BJ goes through a barbed wire board and they have to cut his hair out with barbed because his hair gets completely snagged in the barbed wire. And both times it's so frustrating because the first time especially it takes so long to get him out because they're trying to cut him free with the barbed wire with the wire cutters. And when you look, what they're doing is they're cutting the wire, but they're like not cutting his hair. In fact, they must have left like a piece of the barbed in his hair because at the end when the match is over finally someone must have gotten like a pair of scissors to, to um homicide and he's trying to help out bj even then and like it would be so much easier instead of cutting the barbar just cut the hair that's snagged like just cut a little bit of the hair and be free instead it takes way long because they're like trying to cut the barbed wire that's around the hair and leaving the barbed wire in the hair like it's it's crazy but you know i um, guess i guess in the end of the day it's like there's not really a manual for like how yeah. do you get people out of barbed wire in the middle of a live performance? You know, it's, yeah. it's all everybody. It's all just like making it up as you go along. I wonder Wait, how many. I wonder how many no rope barbed wire matches there have actually like been in wrestling history. I'm guessing in some of these deathmatch promotions, probably kind of a lot, right? But like yeah. outside of those promotions, you know, I guess. But what most of them would have been in what, like FMW or something? I don't even know. Yeah, I'm not even because because EC, ECW, as far as I can remember, there's like two relatively famous ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Did um yeah? Did Axel and Ian Rotten have one against each other, or was that that was a Taipei death match? I don't even remember. Maybe it was Sandman had one, and then obviously uh, Terry Funk and Sabu was the most famous, but. I don't yeah. I don't even know. I I I should probably look up like the barbed wire match history. <laughs> Sam and um, Cactus Jack, right? They're the ones that had the barbed wire match in ECW, right? My memory is awful. I, I'm going to take your word for all of this, Matt. But um, for some, I would say this match will be great. It offers all the blood and barbed wire and violence I think you could possibly expect from this match. I can't see anyone watching this match. And like when we covered uh, the Cage of Death match on the last show, we talked about you pointed out, Matt, like. Um, we both thought the match was great. We know we gushed about the match, but you, you did point out correctly that like it was a cage of death match, but it wasn't really a CZW cage match. Like there were certain things CZW would go to 
that they get that, that they wouldn't go to in Ring of Art, like broken glass and stuff. This match, there's might been a, there was no broken glass. Maybe there's one or two things you know they didn't go to that CZW would have gone to. But this was a hardcore match where I feel like even if you were like a CZW fan or well, a hardcore deathmatch fan with that level of expectations, I don't know how you could watch this match and come away disappointed. Like I think they gave you everything you could have wanted. Um, for me, it's very good. My favorite hardcore matches are things like the Homicide Steve Creel, not not their barbed wire match, but like the Bitter Friend Stiffer Enemies match, which was our which was our Ring of Honor match of the year for 2003, where there's plenty of violence and weapons, but also feels like a brawl, like the two people really hate each other, like there's some real substance to it too. Apart from a little ground and pound early from BJ, there's no real hatred in this match. This is like you mentioned, you you summed it up great when you said this is like a hardcore spot fest, where this is a match where once it gets rolling, they're just going from one brutal gimmick spot to the next and check off boxes like okay we got this to do we got this to do it's more of a stunt show more of an exhibition but those stunts those exhibitions are fucking brutal crazy they have a bunch of them they're going all out it's a completely wild spectacle so i enjoy that in that way at the same time if you don't like this kind of match if a far description of this sounds like you would not you would not like it i guarantee you you won't like it because this is not going to win you win you over um I like the homicide being in the corners, a nice touch. I like him having the thumbtacks for BJ after the last match had homicide using the thumbtacks on Necro in one of the uh, more memorable spots of that match. And um, Necro, obviously, I, I put over how much of a gamer BJ is in this match. But Necro, obviously, we expect it from him, but he obviously takes a ton of uh, pressure in this match too. Especially like the, the most brutal spots he takes in this match don't involve weapons well other than maybe like the brain buster on the open chair it's anytime he leaves his feet because he so rarely gets off the ground and really doesn't get a lot of lift whenever he leaves his feet i'm terrified like there are multiple exploders and brain busters he takes and like i'm always terrified that he's going to land right on his head he barely gets over on some of these things and you know he bleeds a, a crazy amount um it's, just ir- going it's ironic my- that the way Necro Butcher gets over is by barely getting over. <laughs> so one other thing I had a problem with, Matt, in this match, I would say, is I do think it's a little – like the, 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 the pop they get for the big spot where BJ jumps off the ladder – onto the barbed wire board that's wire side down on Necro and goes for the cover. That's a huge pop. That's a great near fall, but it is a little bit anticlimactic. I felt like that after all these crazy bumps, the fault comes like 20, 30 seconds later and it's just a regular exploder. Now granted B Necro barely gets over cause he barely gets over on all suplexes, but I felt like in, in a way I can understand like that near fall is so good. It's almost worth it to kind of, a like more anticlimactic finish. But I also feel like if you generally in wrestling want to end on the high point, like man, that was a high point, and they just decide, no, let's just do a, let's just do a another exploder. Um, and, and I always also sometimes get a little. It, it's not like it's necessarily the worst thing in the world, but I sometimes kind of get a little bit chaffed when wrestlers like they have these brutal hardcore matches and then they end the match just with like a standard wrestling move. Like after all this, just an ex- suplex wins the match. But yeah, sometimes there's a little bit too much of the mentality of we got to protect the finisher. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's like no, just you could do something cool. How about instead? Yeah. So um, 
I have a bunch of notes uh, from the shoot interviews. I Necro Butcher's done a lot of shoot interviews and media interviews, so I haven't been able to. I wasn't able to like scan over it with the time I had a lot. Uh, I, I, before I, you get to that, I just want to confirm. Yes, it was yeah. it was Sandman and Cactus Jack in '95 that had the other big ECW no rope barbed wire match. Ah, uh, I see. Um, that, and the other one. So, was there a name for that show? Or, that was know, um, that show was called. Um, uh, let me just get Sorry, to, yeah, but yeah bar, barbed wire hoodies and choke slams. And it was <laughs> it was on June seventeenth, nineteen ninety five. Um, so Necro Butcher from the shoot interviews I found, he mostly just says like this is one of his favorite matches, which is something a sentiment BJ echoes. But in the BJ Whitmer shoot interview I saw, which is pretty good actually, um, BJ goes into this match in quite a bit of detail. And there's some interesting stuff here. So first off. BJ says the impetus behind this match was Gabe wanted a singles blow off between him and Necro, and he wanted to give the Midwest fans in particular something special. And BJ points out at this point that, like, even though he's from northern Kentucky, which is like 10 minutes south of Cincinnati, Gabe always booked the Dayton market as if it was BJ's home area. And he says the reason why that is is because he used to work for HWA, a Heartland Wrestling Association, before he ever went to uh, – Ring of Honor, and uh, they had TV in Dayton, and so because of that, they always ran their big blow-off shows every month, once or twice a month, in the Montgomery County Fairgrounds in Dayton, and because they had TV there, Whitmer says they always generally drew pretty big houses there, HWA, so from that, that's why Gabe kind of always booked the Dayton market as kind of like B.J. Whitmer's home market and why the feud ends here. Also, also, um, ROH never ran Cincinnati, so... Yeah. So... Whitmer at this point then says, this is a part I found really interesting. He, uh, this is a, this is a good tip for any wrestlers that are listening, uh, if any wrestlers are listening. Whitmer says, uh, Ring of Honor shot him a price to work the barbed wire match. And so he doesn't say what the price is. I'm assuming the way he phrased it, it's, it's, you're getting the, the offer is more than your usual rate because they know you're going to be putting yourself through a lot of stuff. So BJ says his mindset was, he says, I didn't tell Ring of Honor this at first, but he said, whatever homicide got paid for his barbed wire match in Ring of Honor with Steve Carino, that that's what I want to get paid to do this. So he says, what I did is I called up Homicide. I, I told Ring of Honor when they said, do you want to do this match? I said, I'll think about it. He goes, I turn around. I call Homicide. And I go, "It's I understand you don't want to tell me, but how much did you get paid for this for when you did this? Homicide tells him. Again, I wish I, I was curious. I was like, come on, tell us how much it was, but doesn't tell. So BJ calls back and then he says, okay, I want to get paid what Homicide get, got paid. He says, Gabe says, I have to uh, ask, you know, carry but bj saying like you know it's all oh, i think it's only fair i get paid what homicide gets paid because this is gonna be the drawing match of the show and you know it's a brutal match so gabe says i'll ask carry gay uh bj says gabe comes back five minutes later and says yeah carry says yeah he'll pay he'll pay that right and says the match is on then bj notes that he says he calls the building they worked in a blistering inferno was the words bj used to describe this building like i said earlier he said it was close to 100 degrees outside 100 to 110 inside the building by his estimation didn't have air conditioning whitmer calls it one of the fa- his favorite matches of his career and says necro said the same and bj notes you know that's a guy who's had a countless hardcore matches saying that so he's really happy that necro liked it that much he says he and necro would talk about the match later in hotel bars and necro told him at one point he says you know i always took pride in that i'm able to out bump my opponent on any given night basis on that night you out bumped me i couldn't keep up with you he said um and then i got i got to agree <laughs> yeah and, and then um uh, let me see if i can find i put a different note somewhere else so another thing i think we should get into 
that is is really interesting about this match is um something that we kind of forget i i uh, we've because there's been so many shows since then but bj's um ankle was still all fucked up from breaking it in the uh the wrestlemania weekend show with jimmy jacobs where they slipped off the turnbuckle which on this shoot bj goes into depth on that and so bj talks you know he just kept working at that point and he also by the way i should i just slip should slip this in there he tells a funny little anecdote where in that match where you know He's asking Jimmy, are you okay? And Jimmy's like, I'm okay, but you know, it's obvious BJ's ankle screwed up. And Jimmy keeps telling him outside the ring during that match, like, I'm gonna, you're gonna cover me as soon as we get in the ring and I'm just gonna lay there and take the fall. Like, we're not gonna do it the rest of our match. And BJ has to keep telling him over and over again, like, it almost gets to an argument on the floor, like, you're gonna kick out, you're gonna kick out. And then he, he keeps telling him, you're gonna kick out. He throws him in the ring, covers him without telling him again to kick out, but he's just like, he's emphatically telling, you better kick out. And then Jimmy kicks out and, and you know, how big the, uh, the pop was he was proud of that but um so anyway his ankle was still screwed up for all these shows since then his ankle was screwed up and he says so he finally you know he says he go went to a specialist and got an mri like two weeks before cage of death and you know the cage of death match of the last show and the doctor calls back and is like you need surgery not just you need surgery but like you need surgery immediately like can we get you in next week and bta tells the doctor in classic wrestler fashion like I, I can't do, uh, you know, I've got all these shows booked. I, I, I can't do this. You know, I, I, I'll have to do it later. And, and so then he calls Gabe and he tells Gabe, like, look, I'm going to need some time off. I'm going to need like 10 to 12 weeks looking at like cage match. I think BJ only ends up taking like eight weeks off or something, but you know, he tells Gabe, you know, and Gabe's like, well, are you gonna be able to do this stuff? He's like, yeah, I'm going to be able to do these dates. He's just like, don't worry. I'm going to do all the things I've agreed to, but after that, I'm going to need some time off. And so when, so does, when said, does BJ take his time off? He does, he does this show, the, the show, the day later, and then he does three more double shots. He does the next double shot. He does the UK double shot. And then there's one more double shot. And then he takes two months off and comes back before the end of the year. So, and honestly, like, is, honestly, this was the only one where he really, really, really needed to be there. I feel like Gabe could have cut him some slack after this show. I imagine he probably wanted to work the UK shows because that was a, a you know a fun trip. But um, so this was I thought the really interesting part. Um, BJ says he was really surprised and impressed by this. He says um, uh, I could say this for a later show, but might as well. We're, this is the BJ show. <laughs> this, this is the BJ show. Um, so you wish. <laughs> How do you know it's not the BJ show? But um, man, you don't know what's on. Man, I wish <laughs> I wish I wish this was a video podcast now. Oh God. So um. Anyway, there's a good story here. Uh, BJ was shocked by this, not what's happening to me, but he, he was, uh, he says, this never happens on the indie level, but you know, he was giving credit to Ring of Honor here. He, he was saying, so I get the surgery and I have to miss, um, three double shots. I have to miss a double shot in the, on the East Coast and then two Midwest double shots. And he said, Gabe calls me and says, we can't pay you your full rate, but for the East Coast double shot, you're not even going to show up. We're going to pay you 75% of your rate each of the nights. We're going to pay you as if you, three quarters of your money for each of those shows. And then on top of that, while you were coming, the two Midwest double shots, we're going to pay you 100% of your rate. You, you can come down here, cut a promo or whatever, but we're going to pay you that. And he says, so for those six shows, he got paid most of what he would have been paid. And he, and he was just, he, he's like trying to emphasize in the shoot, like guys do not on the, on the indie level, you do not get paid 
for shows you don't work. So the fact that they paid me and, you know, it was implied that was partly probably because he had gone such the extra mile working so many shows hurt, doing matches, crazy, crazy matches like this in the CZW viewed like the fact that he, but he was impressed and he was pointing out that, you know, I had medical insurance at this time, so I didn't need them to, um, cover my surgeries or stuff. But he said at this point in my career, this was a time where I only had wrestling. So like, being out for two months, you know, the fact that they were paying me for anything, that helps a lot. In fact, if you look, I think at the time we record this, Tony Deppin just pointed out that he had just broken his arm. He's going to be out for a couple months with surgery, having to get a plate put in it. And he was talking about how stressed he is. You know, when you're an indie wrestling, you don't have guaranteed money. It's a huge deal if you're trying to make a living just off indie wrestling to get an injury, you know, because you're you're screwed. No one's going to give you make good money. But in this case, apparently, they – helped him out a bit that's from that's honestly and, really remarkable like it's yeah i mean like i think even as a fan we know like that's not something that's done and and, and I'll, I'll say like bj later like this was interview was conducted in 2012 and later like bj is not afraid to like criticize gabe's policy or other people so like this isn't him just sucking up to somebody or anything this is him out just just saying credit where credit is due like they did something that nobody does on the indie level for me um so after the match, the uh, well, and I, I, I do cr- want to mention this because you're talking about the, you know, the BJ shoot yeah, interview. Um, this is one of the things that makes me feel like good about us doing our podcast in the sense of like BJ Whitmer is not a guy that gets super celebrated like outside of certain circles. He's not someone that gets talked about that much. He's not someone that's probably going to be in like you know like the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame or anything like that. Or, you know, even get the, you know, the big, you know, worldwide, you know, outpouring, you know, like, you know, you know, late, you know, hopefully many, you know, many, 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 many years from now when he, when he passes on, um, like, you know, the way, like, let's say a Jay Briscoe did, cause he's just not as famous or well known, but like for this era, he had, he had some incredible moments. He gave so much of himself. He, had some genuinely like great matches based on performances he gave and he doesn't always get the credit. So I'm glad that we can sort of um, do this podcast to, you know, help keep the legacy of the stuff that guys like him contributed during this era alive when it wasn't seen by all that many people, you know, at yeah, least, I, at least I, we can, we can keep a record of the fact that, like, you know, like this guy really, sacrificed a lot and went above and beyond the call of duty and some of the stuff that he produced was really fucking good and this won't be the last one of these big brawls that bj was in that becomes that to me is like one of the legendary matches of roh so i you know hats off to bj whitmer and i'm glad that we could give him some 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 love on this podcast many years later I, I completely agree. And, and watching the shooter view, like he comes off as a, a man. The, the, you can't really judge a guy based on like a very random appearance on a shooter interview, but like he came off as very like well-spoken and gregarious and kind of just a cool, a fairly cool guy. And it was one of those things where he's talking about how like during a lot of his career, he had to work at GNC and, you know, 
he, all the injuries he's suffered and stuff like that, like realizing that now I kind of got a feel, similar vibe from you that feeling good about like, Oh, we can kind of at least give a little spotlight realizing as he, I was watching the shoot that like, Oh, he's a producer in AEW now. Like he's making a full-time living presumably off of wrestling. Like, no, it's true. Watching, and I, mean, I don't even like, mean it like that, but good. like, he still is not somebody that like most fans would know no. or his body of work. And you know, unless you were like watching our ways and he, you know, he got a lot of shit in that era. Like, there were a lot of people that, you know, didn't like him or, you know, criticized him. So yeah, at the very end of the shoot is him being like, I know people say I don't have charisma. He'll say, you know, he just, just kind of goes, I'm fucking great. <laughs> like the very end of the shoot is basically him like flipping off the like people that are against him. Like, That's, just, you know what, like good, he's aware of how he's seen. But good for him that, you know, that he has yeah. that he has that confidence and stuff. Cause you know, yeah, I mean, he wasn't the world's most charismatic wrestler and I could see critiques of him, but you can't deny the effort. I mean, in the sense that Tommy Dreamer got that legacy in ECW of, you know, maybe not being the world's greatest worker, but, you know, he clearly like was a heart and soul of the company and gave a lot of his body and, you know, really damaged his body at a young age. And it's just like, well, BJ during this year did a lot of the same thing. So, you know, he good, good for of- BJ Whitmer and respect to BJ Whitmer. Like wait, 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 later on, when he's talking about some criticisms he has, the Sapolsky's like they're, they're the end of his ring of his first Ring of Honor run. You know, he points out like I'm a guy who did everything that was asked him and stuff like that. And like when you watch this year, what we've been watching, like yeah, you really feel like this is a guy who it doesn't seem like he said no to much. You know, like like who else went this far against the CZW guys? And you you just gave the perfect um comparison tommy dreamer because i was going to ask you i i think when i was really sat down to think about this i'm sure there are matches i'm missing but i think in some ways this night even though it's not well remembered by a lot of people is the high point of bj whitmer's career because think about how many other times can you say all these things aligned for him in the sense of bj whitmer is you know ray of is the biggest company he was in so this is where he tops out so he's in the main event of a ray of honor show that didn't happen very often more than that it's not a tag or a multi-match it's a singles match he's the baby face in the singles match it's the draw of the show you could argue it's the be- i would argue the best match of the show he wins the match and the crowd he's very over in the match like when else did all those stars align like in some ways i would argue i wouldn't be i mean he talks about this as a career highlight i would think just looking over his career in some ways this is like the night of his career he's the closest to being like a real pops feels like a big star like this this is the one night where it's all about him yeah i would agree with that i think you know the as far as like the greatest match of his roh career to me and you know we'll see if it holds up that's still the cage match against jimmy jacobs um and we'll see you know we'll see how that compares to this when we get to it however many months or years from now it is but i um those are the two that stand out as far as like the shining moments of BJ Whitmer. Yeah, and the Jacob stuff is remembered more, but uh, so I would agree, and, and I would agree that's better in in some ways. But also, this is the one time he doesn't have like like the cage match that's on one of those stacked WrestleMania week weekend shows. This is the one time he's not really sharing the spotlight with anybody. Right, like right, this is right, the right. night he's the main event. It's all for him. Exactly. And the Tommy Dreamer thing, like. Gabe really did book him like Tommy Dreamer in this run, and it did work. It's just it didn't sustain, you know. Like, well, that, well, this this can't sustain. It would have yeah. it would have killed him, you know, if they kept this up for, uh, you know, where he, this was just what they did with B.J. Whitmer forever, you know. 
But in terms of they, they like Gabe took a thing right out of his mentor's playbook where here's this guy who's a hard worker who's kind of stuck in the mid card who's not super over with our crowd. So we're going to kind of we have him wear like the, the banner holder for our company against people that are seeking to like tear it down. We're going to have him just suffer for the fans over and over again and just take an ungodly amount of abuse. And it got Tommy Dreamer over. And it got – on this night, I would say it worked for by, – by this night, you would just ask me, well, I would say, well, god damn, it worked for Whitmer too. But yeah, like you said, he can't stay with that and it doesn't – stuff like the Hangman 3, it doesn't keep the momentum going. Um, the other guy I would compare him to is uh, Sean Spears, I feel like, where – and I don't mean this in a negative, but the way some people talk about him, like he's a good hand. He is missing something. That separates good mid-card wrestlers from like the eye-catching, this is my favorite wrestler level wrestlers in the main events. But he's always a really hard worker. He's dependable, you know, he's, he's, a, good, he's a good hand. And that, that sometimes comes off as a negative. And I'm sure if you're on the indie level, being a good hand is not something you want to be. Because at least if you're a good hand on the WWE level, you can make a good living. You can't really make a great living being a good hand on the indie level. But as far as talent, I don't think there's a shame in that. And I guess the last thing I would say is I'll give like kind of Whitmer the, the the last word on his career here because there was one other bit from the shoot interview where the way he framed it I didn't think of, but it makes complete sense as soon as I heard it. So BJ basically says – he says, what I thrive on is storylines I can really sink my teeth into that build up to a big blow-off blow match where I can, he says, where I can work my ass off and bleed. And he goes, he goes, the CZW feud was like that, the Prophecy Second City Saints feud was like that, and the Jimmy Jacobs feud was like that. He goes, those are the, he says, those kind of feuds that end with the big bloody final match is what I grew up on. He goes, those are where I'm like at my best. And like, when he framed it like that, I was like, yeah, like that's all his career highlights to me. Like, those are the things I think of is these few th- and with just one gigantic gimmick match where you're just taking ungodly punishment and working your butt off. Like he really did. Um, th- that's where he was at his best. And unfortunately he doesn't get a ton of those, but he gets, gets a few of those. But, um, so after the match, the crowd chants, that was awesome. And BJ as homicide cuts more of Whitmer's hair off free of the barbs with a pair of scissors. um, Whitmer then drops to his knees, salutes the crowd who chants, thank you, Whitmer. BJ bows to each side of the ring. He climbs the ladders. The entire crowd's on their feet, giving him a standing ovation, chanting for him. And we get a fairly rare for Ray of Honor end of show with no backstage promos. It just ends with him walking to the back. And again, I, I thought this was, I, again, like similar to you, I, I just, I felt like this is nice that he's getting that victory lap, but I'm glad, hopefully, Maybe we our review of this gives a few people a reason to revisit it or think about them because before I watched this match and did this research, I was kind of taking this match for granted too. I kind of forgot about it and like it's a match that made me realize like why I wanted to focus so much on him here it was like he deserves to have his day in the sun. This is his day in the sun, I would say. One of them. But Yep. On that wonderful summer night that we love so much. It was in a sunny, <laughs> sunny summer uh hot day. So quite the day in the sun. And so that brings us to the end of the show. If you want to re- give us any feedback or have any notes about a future show, anything like that, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H. Twitter, at Trevor Dame is me, at Mayor MGF is Matt. And I, and I do just want to say, just because I didn't really totally give my total summation on this show. Um, oh, I forgot that. I forgot that. <laughs> it's 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 – it's a B show, but I don't think it really feels like a B show because that main event was such a big spectacle. And like, 
I do think it's incredibly solid, and if it wasn't for the main event, I would say like it's solid but unmemorable. But the main event is super fucking memorable. So I think boring as it is for us to say, another damn good ROH DVD. Yeah, I agree. You know, it does feel very much like a B-show in some ways, but in some ways it doesn't. Like – there are stakes on this show between the uh, the main event being a big blow off like a crazy gimmick match you won't see hardly ever else in Ring of Honor's history to this being the show that Seidel finally gets to beat Daniels to even the four-way actually having – setting up a future title match when four-ways often don't even do that. Like yeah. even if some of the matches are a little bit like the Colt-Nigel match and the Briscoe's you know, Roddy and, and Jack Evans match aren't as good as you would hope they would be. And there is a bit of a pre B show vibe at some points. It's a, it's a good B show with like a, a couple special, like one real special, unique moment things on, up top. Considering how big the last show was, they could have done much less on this show and gotten away with it. So good for them for putting out another exciting event. And that brings us, in fact, to the next show we'll be coming. It's the second half of this double shot, and that is a show entitled Generation Now, back in Cleveland. That's a show where we'll get the Nigel McGuinness, Brian Danielson, their second match in Ring of Honor. We'll get um, uh, Christian Cage's second and final match in Ring of Honor against Christopher Daniels. And we'll get the match that kind of is the billing for the show, Generation Now. We'll get the final Generation Next eight-man tag where they kind of – bookend their Ring of Honor career as a stable with uh, another eight-man tag against the rising stars of Ring of Honor, only one of them that actually kind of keeps a spot in Ring of Honor long-term. But that should be fun. There's going to be a lot to talk about there. So we'll catch you then. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.